I'm Monica Schiltz from voicefarmers.com, and you're listening to another episode of whatcopswatch.com. They all wear uniforms. They're honored to wear the badge. They defend life and property and carry guns. While they're often called superheroes, they, in the end, are humans, just like you and I. This is WhatCopsWatch.com. I'm Captain Chris Giuseppe. I'm an author, a screenwriter, and I've been in law enforcement for over 20 years. I'm Mike Wilkerson, the media generator with thousands of entertainment podcast reviews across a decade plus, loaded and ready for bear. The television programming is out there. The feature films are bigger, more action-packed than ever, and out there too. It's a growing world of media, both on and offline, but what do cops watch? Get ready to cross the yellow podcast tape and learn more about the thin blue line. It's time for another episode of WhatCopsWatch.com. There's something magnetic about Chuck Norris. It's why we can't quote one of a million quotes where Chuck Norris does something like, Chuck Norris doesn't do push-ups. He pushes the world down. The memories of the best Chuck Norris quotes are good, but you know what's even better? The memories of my mom being in a Chuck Norris movie. Back in the early 1980s, my mom was an extra inside of 1985's Code of Silence, starring Mr. Push the World Down himself, Chuck Norris. Today, I'm joined by Christy Giuseppe, a captain and local law enforcement in the St. Louis area, and Tommy Model, a police officer serving in the South Chicagoland area, to go over each and every thought I've ever had about 1985's Code of Silence, here on the Two Guys Talking Podcast Network. Greetings, everybody. I'm Mike Wilkerson, one of your hosts. And I'm Chris Giuseppe, your other host. And I'm Tommy Model, a guest host from the South Chicagoland area. And wow, Chris, that's Tommy Model on the phone. Did you know that? It's great, yeah. That's awesome. Tommy has a I love, fan- love bringing other law enforcement in on these perspective reviews, yeah. and uh, I think that we're going to have a great, <laughs> great talk today. Yeah, yeah. Tommy has a fantastic YouTube channel that I want everybody to open up a web browser right now as you're listening to us, unless, of course, you're driving and need a ticket from any of the officers that are listening, <laughs> <laughs> and jump over to free field training inside of the YouTube land. And wow, it, it is, I think, Tommy, what I love about your content is that is it is it is terribly every man. Yeah. Uh, you you listen to any of your particular pieces of education that happen inside the law enforcement vein and I love law enforcement, but even if I didn't love law enforcement, the people that love education would love your content. Well, and de- demonstrating, you know what you had said before Tommy about demonstrating certain products and aspects of the job, you know, from somebody who's actually used the equipment and been there, I think that adds a flavor that, you know, you just don't get, as you said, from the uh, the company's uh, marketing campaign. It's a, a great and unique perspective. Yeah, totally. Welcome. It's great to have you, Tommy. Oh, it's, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. So guys, we got the code of silence inside of the Perspective Review Crosshairs, but first, some quick housekeeping. Another 24 podcast completed. Done. 
Wow, that was awesome. Another fantastic all-fan input episode that we just concluded, which you can all find right now by going over to Mm 24podcast.com, where we had people from all over the world chime in about our most recent episode following the hour-by-hour activities of our dashing Army Ranger hero, Eric Carter, inside of Fox's 24 Legacy this season. Yeah, it was fantastic. It was a lot of fun. We had a lot of really great special guests. We had everything from former Navy SEALs come on, to real-life crisis negotiators, to all kinds of people inside of different industries that give perspective on what you saw inside the smaller HD screen. Great stuff. Check it out over at 24podcast.com. Free field training. I am, of course, referring to the free field training that Chris and I have already talked about. Mm -hmm. I just wanted to make sure that we put in another focal point here for you to go and check out Tommy's fantastic free field training, which you can link to inside the show notes for this episode over at PerspectiveReviews.com or TwoGuysTalking.com. All right, gents, it's time for the Perspective Review of 1985's Code of Silence, starring Chuck Norris. Chris, I've got my brown leather jacket. I see that you've donned the fantastic Chuck Norris hair and beard. Pretty sexy. Absolutely. The, the same one I wear every day where I just you know shave all my hair off and you know no beard, and that's the way it goes. <laughs> you know what? Tommy actually, Very sport, efficient. Tommy actually sports a Chuck Norris beard. Do you not, Tommy? It is, it is, it is nice to have a boss who is cool. <laughs> right. So the so the regulations up there is st- still allow you to have a beard, and I I got to tell you, Mike Wilkerson, if ours did, I would definitely grow at least the goatee, but <laughs> but they don't. While all of you think about that grand sight, it's time for the perspective review of Code of Silence. Sponsored by Sprints Relay Missouri, Bloggers Bug, the Editor Core, and VoiceFarmers.com. Is your business or organization looking to support law enforcement? Be sure to check out the perpetual advertising programs available at twoguystalking.com forward slash sponsors. The Orion logo. I know all of you usually complain about how granular I get when we do these perspective reviews, but the fact of the matter is that the Orion feature film logo that you see at the beginning of this movie Mm -hmm. is easily one of my most dominant memories as a child. Really? No no question in my mind. Explain that. Let's hear it. Sure. The spinning Orion logo starts as one star. Mm Mm-hmm the center star inside of Orion's belt and then expands to the entire logo. Mm -hmm. And what a lot of people also forget is that the Orion film brand Mm -hmm. was what Chuck Norris released almost all of his really super uber kick-ass movies under. Okay. The impact of it is just gargantuan inside of my really sweet spot of pop culture. So it was great to see it as you start this film. So as you look at that, does that 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 brings back the memory of Chuck Norris films. That's his his brand. It may as well be a tattoo on his super hairy chest that you wouldn't see. It it, it it is connected to, to him without okay. question. All right. Say, hey, hey, radio chatter. Radio so how chatter. many times have you guys used say, hey, hey, inside of your radio chatter at work? I don't think I've ever used that on the air. I'll, uh, Tommy, ever use that on the air? No, I, I do believe that would get me a talking to. Right. right. Talking right. To there, there is radio etiquette <laughs> that uh, you have to follow. You know, I like that first scene where they kind of take you back into the very 80s-looking tech oh, yeah. of the dispatch center. Not being from a larger agency, uh, I can't tell you, and not being from actually policing in the 80s, I started my career back in 1991, I don't know if that's accurate or not. I don't know if that's actually what it looked like, but 
it uh, you could tell that that was very dated, very old yeah, tech, the, the, uh, but definitely definitely giving the feeling that you're in a very large agency in a large dispatch center. Yeah, the other thing you got from it was bowled over the head with is the technology that's seen here, the old Korean Army walkie-talkies. Mm-hmm. Right. That that little bug mic that that guy, the black guy is walking around with saying, say hey into. Right. Okay, they're huge. Right. They're absolutely huge. And it is another indicator of when this movie was made. It was very dated, yeah. Super dated, and I think uh, this might be an excellent time to... Talking about music. The music was killing me. I mean, it, <laughs> it just, you know, <clears throat> I uh, I pictured, uh, you know, Mike Wilkerson back in the 80s with his break, break dancing club, you know, you know, aspiring to be Prince or whoever. And, uh, you know, it was just killing me. It was that terrible 80s movie. And I hope to God, Mike Wilkerson, you did not buy the soundtrack to this. I don't know. I, I did, did not. Okay, I did not. Right. Just about okay. everybody realizes that I am the soundtrack horror. But I am yeah, I hope you didn't not, buy this soundtrack. Yeah, I am definitively not this soundtrack horror, not by any Because stretch. if I catch you going down the highway playing that music, you might get, I don't know, you might get stopped, Mike. Tommy, would you get a talking to inside your house listening to the soundtrack? I'll tell you, it's actually funny you brought that up because I was laying in bed and I had streamed this from my phone to the TV and I was watching the movie <laughs> one last time because we were recording today and my wife made me... Shut it off and go watch it in the living room. And she couldn't deal with the noise. She couldn't deal with the music. It's it's she rough. Asked me, she was laying in bed with a, a rag on her face because she had a yeah. migraine, and she said, yeah. "This is giving me an even worse headache." Uh, I and totally I, understand. Is this, is this in black and white? It sounds like it's in black and white. <laughs> right. It's rough. Totally understand. But you know, it did it did kind of coordinate with a lot of Chuck Norris movies back in the back in the eighties and those eighties movies. They they just didn't have decent music you know a lot of them didn't have decent music and this this one hits a home run with that category i'm not going to pile on nearly as big as christy giuseppe is here what i am going to say is that it is in super indicative mid 80s music right there's no question about it obviously made by a master at work making sure that all of the seamless reels are put together inside of a great chuck norris film it's rough it, it right. is definitely rough. But you can buy a copy of the soundtrack right now by going over to our website, whatcopswatch.com, and click inside the show notes link for this episode. When garbage cans were actually cans. Were actually metal. Not only that, dude. I, I realize that it's Chuck <clears throat> Norris and he pushes the earth down instead of push-ups. Right. But that is a 55-gallon drum Right. That he's picking up with garbage in it and then dumping it out. Now, I realize there's not probably anvils and stuff inside of it. No. Although if there was, it doesn't matter because it's, it's Chuck, Chuck Norris. Norris. right? Uh, but wow, <laughs> it was amazing to see somebody pick up a 55-gallon can that was a garbage can that is then emptied into the back of a garbage truck. But you don't put you know, a lightweight garbage can in the hands of Chuck Norris. You've got to have that 55-gallon drum to make that statement. I'm amazed that he used his hands. I thought for sure he would just be kicking it into appropriate place, and then it would just land because of fear. They probably told him to tone it down a bit. Probably, probably. Tommy, uh, are there any stories of legend in your area of garbage cans and garbage men? I don't think so. Not that I'm aware of. We have toters now and have for a while where the, the garbage truck comes up and automatically picks them up and throws them in. Hmm. So are the, uh, the no drivers then either? They're all automated robot vehicles? I, I don't think I've seen a garbage man pick up a garbage can and put it into a truck since I was a little kid. Wow. They've been using the, yeah. the automated garbage lifter. So there's a driver, and he pulls up, 
and they yep. slide a little hook along the back of the toter and it dumps it into the truck. Yep. That's the same same as it is down here. Yeah. You know, technology has increased. That's why you don't see, you know, you haven't seen more modern movies. They don't have the handheld police radios that are the size of a lunchbox anymore. Yeah. Now, um, that it's funny that you mentioned radios, though, because I just saw it's, uh, we'll link <clears> over to it because it really is outstanding content. We'll link over to the Miami Vice's vlog online. Mm-hmm. And inside of there, they just visited the... Um, California Highway Patrol, the 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 real chips guys, mm-hmm. and inside of one of their cruiser vehicles, they now have completely wireless microphone system that's built into the car. Okay, and I don't mean like you know you and I can sit down inside of our Bluetooth environment inside of our cars, right? But th- like there is a microphone that's attached to the top of the windshield. Sure. That so instead of having to key a mic or reach for something on your personal body or whatever, right? You don't have to do that anymore. You it just it's set as a Vox thing like astronauts are. Well, and it's an interesting perspective too. You know, as technology increases, and I can tell you a real story with that. The modern day police package for Tauruses, mm-hmm. the police interceptors, they put these buttons on the steering wheels, and I can tell you from hitting those buttons going down the street, I actually had had them come out and take the siren. And lights off of that. You got to hit them, toggle them up one way, toggle them down another way. I'll tell you what, I would, I'd go around a corner and I'd hit that every once in a while, forget how to turn it off. You know, because, hey, Tommy, let's face it, I'm, I'm a captain, I'm in administration, I'm not out there all the time, so, you know, I got to get one of the road guys to come over and tell me how to turn that thing off. You know, and there's people looking at me going down the street and they're like, oh, you got to, am I in trouble this night? I had to actually apologize to a guy at a stop sign and said, sorry, man, I hit that with my hand. It was an accident. So technology can be a good thing, um, but then again, sometimes i got to revert back to the old ways. One of the new explorers, they actually fixed that problem on the steering wheels. I just got a new one at work. Yeah, you guys got, the, the, uh, you guys got the buttons on the, <clears throat> the toggle buttons on the wheels to hit the lights and such? I went from a 2014 Ford Taurus, Yep. Uh, the all-wheel drive one, Right. had the toggle switches on the steering wheel, and they were right in the spot where if you're going to palm the wheel. Right, that's what I'm saying. <laughs> That's exactly. We never we never connected lights or sirens to them. Right. That's exactly. We're having that problem, and now the new Ford Explorers that yep. they came out with, they changed the design a little bit, and right. I haven't hit the buttons once on those. Okay. Well, that's that's good. To, that's good to know, and I'm glad they've changed that. But uh, yeah, me, I'm going down the road. Like I said, I hit, the, and they'd always put the siren like on the top one, right where my hand hit. I'd hit that thing, and I could forget, and then I'd hit it down, you know, the other way, thinking, well, it would shut it off. No, it just gives it a different no. tone. <laughs> And then I've got to apologize to motorists as they get out of my way. <laughs> Prime Chuck. You guys realize that I couldn't possibly go through this movie without saying the words Prime Chuck. Because I cackle because Chuck Norris in 1985 mm-hmm. was my age now. Right. And I look at Chuck Norris kicking all kinds of super combat ass inside of this movie. Right. And holy cow, this was a man in his prime. Just right. had the had the world by the tail. He had a movie coming out every eighteen months inside of so many different folds. Right. Where he was essentially the same character with a different moniker with the same facial expression. And an absolute god bod. Well, one of I the mean, things one of the things crazy. with Chuck Norris is he could be in a bad movie and it's still entertaining. <laughs> it's just there was something about him. That it could be. I mean, you could have cheesy music. Yeah, check that one off. You could have the '80s, like Dennis Farina. 
Yeah. Uh, you know, he's got the he's got the classic 80s mustache and you know, I, and throughout the movie there was some cheesy dialogue here and there, but it doesn't matter cuz Chuck Norris is in the movie. He yeah. makes the movie. He's just he's just entertaining. Yeah. And he's so good, he's so proficient at martial arts and what he does is his craft that that you you stick with the movie. Yeah. A Rubik's Cube, an uncle, and the video you must all see. We've been talking about Tommy and his YouTube exploits here inside of Free Field Training, but there's another video that we're going to link all of you up to in which a 16-row on each side Rubik's Cube is solved by a 9-year-old. Yeah, (laughs) let's have you all wrap your mind around that one. Because it is amazing. The other thing I mentioned here inside of the Rubik's Cube experience is my Uncle Josh. I remember specifically around this same year, I think it was actually 1984. But I remember my Uncle Josh being over at my dad's house and watching him sit there while we had brunch or something on a Sunday. Solve the Rubik's Cube just like, it, like uh, hey, I've got to tie my shoes quick. Mm-hmm. And it's amazing to watch somebody do that. It's uh, the only thing more amazing, of course, is that 16-sided nine-year-old solving the Rubik's Cube. And then also the uh, there's now a competition where they have a series of tables. Rubik's Cubes are all mashed up, Mm -hmm. jumbled, blah. And then they put a drape over them. And what they do is they'll take the drape off all at the same time when Mm -hmm. there's 30 people around tables. Mm -hmm. And then they put the drape back on. Everybody looks into the center of the table for just a moment. And then they... They unfurl the Rubik's Cube, and then they put a blindfold on, mm-hmm. and then they, they all reconfigure them right, to be solved. right. And I'm like, that's just not right. No, it's just not. And there, there yeah. are a lot of people that can <laughs> solve it. Uh, in fact, if you go out to the internet, Google that up, there are steps to take that you can take the Rubik's Cube, and it will teach you how to solve it. I must not be intelligent enough because I read the entire thing, and I can't figure it out, and I can, I can never solve it. But there are a lot of people that do. I have a... a a friend and neighbor whose uh, wife come up, pick that thing up, and bang, it's solved. I, I, I just, I guess I'm just not, uh, just yeah. not that good. I'm not the math guy. I am a patterns guy, but sure. I'm not that big a patterns guy. Right. Tommy, are you into solving the Rubik's cube anytime soon, or what? I would probably take the stickers off and put them back on and claim <laughs> that I did it. Hey, there's, there's more than one way, Tommy. That's right. I, I will be, now. That would be the limits of my ability to solve a Rubik's cube. I will now admit to all of you that's exactly what I did and showed it to my uncle, and my uncle said, ah, bullshit. <laughs> oh, I, you know, it's it's just perspective. I mean, it, it's creative, and, uh, you know, you got to give a person credit for thinking outside the box, literally. Yeah. I, I know that my uncle will be eventually listening to this podcast because he always finds his way into the pieces parts where he's mentioned, very much like he can solve Rubik's Cubes instantly, inside of our podcast content here at whatcopswatch.com. The land before vehicle graphics existed. Well, we How see about the, this, dude? We see this, you know, I guess in the beginning you're talking about the, one of the beginning scenes where they're setting up to go do this dope deal. Yeah, the fake they've painters got, pop out of the, yeah, the got painting the fake, truck. Right, the fake painters in the truck, but also the other vehicles that they're driving. I, you know, and I don't know where I had this noted in my notes. I'm not sure if we're going to get to it later, but might as well talk about it now. Yeah. Look at the vehicles that they they were set up in. The only thing that I can figure is that they had some drug seizures from some pretty bad drug dealers that you know actually didn't make a lot of money because they all have these crappy rusted out vehicles that they gave them to drive on the force. I guess they were supposed to be perhaps part of this drug task force or some type of unit. 
look at all those vehicles. I mean, they were just kind of crap vehicles, rusted out. Yeah. And, you know, what? I mean, what was Chuck driving? He was driving like the 1973 <laughs> Firebird, what, Pontiac Firebird that was kind of wearing, you know, on the... I don't know. I'm not entirely sure, but it's funny that we're talking about Chuck Norris and vehicles because in another bonzo awesome Chuck Norris movie that we must do a perspective review of, it's called Lone Wolf McQuaid. Yeah. And it is by far one of my favorite Chuck Norris films. Sure. Mostly because of the vehicle featured inside of that one, which we, uh, we've we mentioned inside of a couple of other episodes inside of twoguystalkingcars.com. Mm-hmm. But you're absolutely right about the vehicles. And then the well, what I was focusing on here was we now as a society, we look across a swath of vehicles, whether it's on the highway or parked on a road or inside of a company someplace. Right. And we see these finely detailed vehicles that are part of the marketing advertising footprint for a company someplace. Right. Well, that's not what we see here. What we see here is a white van that was painted by somebody who is a painter Right. that is not a very good painter. No. No. <laughs> and so I wanted to make sure we mentioned that because, again, it, it, it speaks to that nostalgia of what was. There right. was a time when, sure, maybe someone did have a vehicle as a painter, and what they would have done was they would have gotten the right kind of acrylic paint and they would have right. made sure that the car door is nice and clean, and then they would have painted their phone number on it. Right. That's exactly what you see here. Well, in these beginning scenes, too, like I said, when we were looking at looking at these vehicles and such, I'll defer to Tommy on this, too, back in Chicagoland. This is the difference between policing back in the 80s and our era of policing. I don't know. Maybe they did drive cars like that. But, uh, Tommy, certainly nothing like that going on these days, right? They still do. In fact, that's, it's, uh, the Chicago tech units have been known okay impound cars and then drive them for the night okay all right I love that. okay i love that very good cover i guess the uh, chicago tac teams have actually been known to arrest a person and impound their car mm-hmm. there's various things they can impound for mm-hmm. and then take that car and use it for the rest of the night okay so that's where some some of the stuff that i saw in the movie having to do with vehicles like i i really actually like chuck norris's car because that's very yeah. That's very much the type of thing that you would use for that purpose here. Okay. They purposely go to the impound yard and select a car that would still run but look terrible to work in that neighborhood. Right. And if you think about it, at that time, if you went and if you showed up in that neighborhood wearing the clothes they were wearing, driving a nice brand new car, they would stick out like a sore thumb. There's, sure. there's no way they'd be able to tail somebody effectively. Sure. And even in the movie, you can see the bad guys noticing the tail because they know the guys that are there but a brand new car in that neighborhood would stick out the hype the hype is where we talk about where we initially saw this movie as well as any of the promotional stuffs that were associated with this movie i think we're going to start with chris who is the eldest of the three of us here chris do you remember seeing this feature film in the in the theater or where did I, you see it first i did not see this in the theater mm-hmm. i do not recall where i saw this i probably saw this on cable somewhere okay you know mm-hmm. hbo showtime something like that okay um, after well after it was out okay i was a chuck norris fan but mm-hmm. i i never did see a lot of movies in the movie theater. I have to totally admit that I knew all about this movie because, as I said inside of our intro, mm-hmm. my mom was in this movie. She was an extra inside of the L the L scenes inside of this, and uh, she was an extra inside of this movie that was shot about two years before it actually came out. Okay. So I, I knew that it was coming. My mom knew the exact date that it was out, and both of my parents were incredibly wide open in regard to taking me to movies that had lots of swear words and buck-naked people <laughs> in it, and I guess that explains quite a bit. 
<laughs> but the gist is that, yes, I knew all, everything about this movie as well, seeing it inside the theater when it came out. And uh, I, again, the Internet has completely changed how all of us see and experience the hype in regard to anything. Right. In 1985, in 1984-ish, 1985-ish, there was nothing like this that was giving us any kind of inclination of something coming. All you'd get is a movie, an occasional movie poster, perhaps a movie trailer tucked inside of another you know, full of swear words, naked ladies movie. Mm-hmm. And so that was really it. Tommy, uh, were, I, I dare say, were you alive when this was put out? Well, I'm 34 now. I was born in 83, so I was two years old when this movie came out. <laughs> so you probably weren't allowed to see it. <laughs> yeah. I, I probably was allowed to see it because I wouldn't have understood anything about okay. what was going on. Yeah, there you go. You were probably brought into the theater because you couldn't see anything, except experience yeah. the great music that was featured inside of this yes. film. Yes. Yeah, sure. <laughs> So uh, what I also wanted to fast forward to now is that I would like to congratulate Amazon for making at least $13 off of the three of us as we watch this feature film again. I have an exhaustive DVD Blu-ray collection, but what I do not have is this on DVD or Blu-ray, though I do Mm -hmm. have, because again, my mom got it for me originally, very expensive, is the original Code of Silence VHS tape. VHS, great. VHS tape. Yeah. Tommy, do you remember VHS tapes, or was that another I, whole thing? No, I actually, I remember, I am not so young that I don't remember, <laughs> be kind, please rewind. That's and, right. And renting VHS tapes at Blockbuster. At Blockbuster That's Video, right. yeah. That's yeah, right. Yeah, do you awesome. have the, uh, perhaps have the soundtrack on 8-Track? 8-Track. <laughs> no? I figured I'd go there. 8-Track, eight, eight <laughs> awesome, DiGiuseppe, awesome. The Money. Ah, one of my favorite areas inside of every single perspective review that we do, where we dig into just how much cash this movie, 1985's Code of Silence, made. The fun is in the guesses, which we now, instead of having one totally off guess, we're now going to have potentially two completely off guesses. DiGiuseppe, you are up. What did this movie make domestically here in the U.S.? What did it gross domestically? Yes. Lay it on me. $18 million. 18 million, okay. And Mr. Model, what have you got? Uh, how about, uh, I'd say, 22 million in 85 money. Okay. So you both are very close, which actually is kind of an awesome experience because we've never had that inside of the perspective review cone. So the opening weekend, this movie makes $5.5 million. Domestic take for this movie now over 34 years is 20345000 Okay. So you guys were you guys were a lot closer than traditionally, especially Chris. Chris usually just botches everything inside of the inside of the budget. I have no concept of money. I'm a cop. <laughs> That's right. Uh, that actually is not too bad a sum of money. Again, it's another Chuck Norris movie, so right. how can anybody say no? Everybody's buying tickets. Everybody's getting in line and going to see it the first weekend. Right. Probably for another two or three weekends as it ebbs. And then, of course, the rest of the money here is going to be DVD, Blu-ray, and, of course... Amazon sales. There you go. Norris movie. It's like pizza. That's well, right. Time. It's really good. And when it's not good, eh, it's still a Chuck Norris movie. Right. Nobody's still getting kicked. That's <laughs> right. It's still pizza. The good. We must simply talk about the extensive, exhaustive, not going to ever stop cast inside of this movie. Chris, I know your notes were absolutely filled to the brim 
with cast members that were not only seen inside this movie featuring cops in Chicago, featuring bad cops in Chicago, featuring Chuck Norris as a cop in Chicago. Sure. But what else? What? Who else was in this movie that you really hit at Chicha? Well, I mean, there, there were so many familiar faces that I would label this movie as an all-star cast. I mean, they had a lot of faces from other like movies and mm-hmm. I'll, I'll defer I'm one of them was from uh, uh, above the law mm-hmm. and we have Joseph Casala mm-hmm. who uh, plays Lieutenant Kobas in this movie he also was in above the law and he looks exactly the same I think he's wearing the same suit coat I think he's wearing <laughs> the same tie he's got the same glasses on the same expression the guy looks the same if you recall in the beginning the actor who had the trombone case right with uh i guess with all the money in it or what whatnot mm-hmm. sure and was making the drug deal he was an above the law too so you have a lot of other movies that are around that time where they use the same actors yeah and we could go on and on you uh you mentioned that the actor craigie that played craigie was in quite a few other things, right? Uh, Home Alone? A, a ton of other things. Yeah, he was in the Blues Brothers. He was in Home Alone. What I really want to do is I want to defer to Tommy here and ask him that you obviously, as a cop serving in South Chicago landish, you re- have to recognize half of these people as the cops that were in the movies when you were a kid, right? Yeah, the, the one that really jumped out at me was, uh, I, I can't pronounce the guy's last name, Joseph yep. Osawa, I yep. think is his name. Yep, Kosala. He's kind of a, a background character in a couple of movies, especially The Fugitive when I was a kid. Yeah. Right. And I remember him because he always plays he always plays a cop, and he's really good at it because he was actually a retired Chicago cop. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I and, didn't know that, and, and that's, this, that's exactly what I was talking movie, about. It's almost like they don't even change his outfit. They just stick yeah. him into the next movie. I like it because every, every time I see him in a movie, he adds a little something in there that it legitimizes in my head, especially seeing him in this one as a Chicago cop carrying that big eight inch chrome yeah. or uh, stainless. I, I was going to mention that. Yes. 44 Magnum. Yes. And he's got in the, the bar scene, he's got a little Chicago police department necklace around his neck, a okay. little charm. They're pretty popular here. Guys have their badge made up as a necklace. Okay. They wear it outside of their shirt when they're off duty. And okay. it was really cool to see that level of detail in the movie. And I'm sure that came from, him being a police officer before he was an actor. Absolutely. Oh, I love that. That that little bit of detail is something that Chris and I talk about, I think, inside of every single thing that we ever do, which is when in doubt, if you're going to show it on screen, whether it be the silver screen or the smaller HD screen, go get a cop and ask. Go, and, go to ground, mm-hmm. get the detail, and showcase the detail so that you get something that is at least remotely realistic. As opposed to just dressing up an actor as a cop with a badge, flashing it around, firing a gun, done, and push it out. Well, and and it, we've seen where it, it goes matter. bad. Oh, yeah. Where it goes huge, bad. Huge, And what happens then is then they depict our profession as something that it's not. Mm-hmm. And that goes bad. Because the public's perception of that, they, they think that that's reality. Right. And then they come to me and Tommy and they say, hey, wait a minute. No, no, no. You can do that. I saw that. I saw that in the movies. No, that's not how it works. <laughs> so right. we're gonna we're gonna dig in deep on inside of some of that inside this perspective review of 1985's Code of Silence. <laughs> the weapons that had impact in the 1980s. As we begin this discussion of the weapons that we're gonna 
just totally blurt out about. Mm-hmm. I want everybody to jump over to our website over at whatcopswatch.com and click inside the show notes for this episode, which will provide you a link to the Internet Movie Firearms database. Mm-hmm. And inside of that link, what you will find are the links to every single one of the weapons that are featured here, along with callouts, details, specs, etc., 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 along with photographs. So it, it, it's That's, it's really a spectacular resource, yep. and it's something I wish that I'd had way back then. Because Tommy is legend inside of his videos for rattling off specs and detail about guns mm-hmm. and belts and boots and all kinds of awesome that law enforcement individuals wear. And I wish that I had that skill set. Mm-hmm. And you can definitely start your trip inside of the Internet Movie Firearms Database. And another thing we can link to, Mike, is the podcast that we did on the top most prolific firearms in law enforcement. We had a special guest, Paul Bastine, Mm -hmm. that's the head of Ultimate Defense Firing Range and Training Center, Mm -hmm. and just a a real in-depth discussion about these prolific firearms. Some of these firearms really... Uh, set a brand mm-hmm. for that for the movie and for the film. They, they do not only for the film, but also for this era of uh, entertainment making. Really, mm-hmm. uh, I can remember vividly the first time I saw what was either an Uzi slash Mac Ten slash mm-hmm. these little guns that you see, especially the ones that have the suppressors on the end. Mm-hmm. I remember seeing those originally inside of the Miami Vice stuffs. And, I mean, all over the place, and they are used with huge impact here. The sounds aren't accurate that you hear inside of inside of the film. But it is great to see them implemented, especially inside of something like South Chicago. Tommy, do you have lots of reports of fully automatic suppressed machine guns inside of the South Chicagoland area? The Max, long before I got into police work, they stopped selling open-bolt semi-automatic guns. And so that kind of dried up most of the full-auto guns that you would find on the street. You still could get them occasionally every once in a while. We've had people buy parts kits and try to make a tube gun in their basement. Mm-hmm. We don't really find them on crime scenes very much anymore. I think the last one that we got that went to ATF that they verified this full auto was a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. It was an older Mac. But since the ATF came in a while ago and told companies that they couldn't make semi-automatic firearms that were open bolt anymore, it made it a lot harder to unlawfully convert them mm-hmm. to full autos. And now that it's a little harder to unlawfully convert them, you don't see them as much. It takes a lot more technical expertise these days mm-hmm. to take a commercial firearm and turn it into a full auto. And the black market has a hard time making it as far as the Chicagoland area with them. And they're still out there, but it's not as prolific as I've heard from guys that started in the late 80s and early 90s that mm-hmm. they used to be. Something else that's progressed also, I can go back to my tenure when I first started back in 1991. I was just on the cusp of law enforcement converting, it wasn't too many years after that, converting from the revolver to you know a semi-automatic pistol. Mm-hmm. In the academy, I actually qualified on the old, Tommy will have to help me out here because I'm not a gun expert, but the old Smith & Wesson 357, you know, heavy frame, the uh, LK, L-frame, K-frame, whatever they used to call it, those 357 Magnum firearms that we we used because it was cheaper we used the 38 special rounds that we put through that but that's actually what i qualified on so it was the era where we shot that at the range that's what we practiced on that's what we qualified on we had the the speed loader rings that we would reload with and such Mm -hmm. and then shortly thereafter 
law enforcement started transitioning in my world over to the semi-automatic pistol. Yeah, when I was doing research inside for this episode that, again, features so many classic firearms, especially when it comes to law enforcement, when I was doing my research, what I found were some wonderful videos that we'll link up inside the show notes inside this episode over to uh, some landmark goings-on inside of law enforcement and law, uh, law enforcement officers' deaths in mm-hmm. regard to what was being pointed to as, see, that's why we need to do something different. Right. In that you get your six shots, and now it's time to reload. Right. And in reloading, you have to take your eyes off of what's going on in front of you to reload your gun, and hey, the bad guy gets you. Right. And there was there was arguments as to accuracy. I can tell you that those three fifty sevens they were accurate. It was it was a target pistol. I mean, mm-hmm. it, yeah. And you know, and there were a bunch of other things too. The targets were you know man sized. I mean, the targets that we shoot at these days are a lot smaller. They're a lot harder to hit. Mm-hmm. But through research and through uh, the desire for proficiency, things change. Yeah. I'm amazed watching this movie, being a, a child of the '80s and not really getting into firearms until the early 2000s, and how popular some guns were at the time that are now relatively rare. We see several Dan Wesson revolvers in this movie, and that's not something that you really see outside of people's personal collections, and you certainly mm-hmm. wouldn't see it on a police officer's duty belt anymore. I really only right. know one cop still who's carrying a revolver around, and I've only seen a couple inside the U.S. in my travelings that are still using them, and every time I've seen one has been in the Chicagoland area. Hmm. Interesting. And is that a conversation that you can bring up with that officer that's wearing a revolver that doesn't point into some sort of insult? Oh, yeah. There's actually one officer that I work with that still uses a uh, K-frame 357 Smith & Wesson Mm -hmm. on the job, and their reason for still using it is that when we tried to transition over, everybody that was hired after, I think, the 94-95 time period Mm -hmm. is required to carry a semi-auto as their duty weapon. Right. And the one officer that still uses an old K-frame that I work with, her reason for continuing to use that K-frame is that she's more proficient and more right. accurate with the revolver than she was when she tried to transition to a semi-auto. So she's our last holdout with the, the revolver still. And then I've met another police officer who was a Chicago police officer assigned to O'Hare Airport. And he has quite the white hair, and mm-hmm. he was a rather large guy, so I'm assuming he was coasting out the door to retirement two years ago when I saw him. He was still carrying right. a revolver patrolling inside of O'Hare Airport. Right, and I, I can I can attest to that. It When when we qualified back in 91 in the academy, those uh, that heavy K-frame pistol that you're talking about, that revolver, it did feel a lot more accurate. Now, I'll have arguments these days from some of my firearms instructors. Now, the, you know, the, the Glock semi-automatic pistol is, is just as accurate it took me a while. It took me a while to to transition as far as agree that hey, I can I can be just as accurate with the semi-automatic pistol. And I'm completely I'm not completely sure. If you put a revolver back in my hand, I might hit the target better. I mean, they were just heavier. I don't know. It was just it was a target pistol. I They're think very intuitive to use. Yeah. And it you know, simplistic and seemed that it was it was more accurate, easier to use, but I have to go back to that's how we were trained. That's what we were used to. Yeah, there, there's something else to to mention too. My my dad gave me his service revolver a couple of years ago, and it's fun to have it. Not just because it was my dad's, but because it's fun to shoot. Sure. That it, it's 
the, the experience for those of you that haven't shot of quote wheel gun slash revolver is that it's just fun. I, sure. it, it, there's nothing wrong with a, a modern day semi-automatic handgun of any ilk, whether it's Glock or no. whatever else. They're, those are also cool and they also can be fun. But there's something different to holding this. It is it's giant chrome black mm-hmm. handle, awesome, it's heavy, right? Uh, it is heavy and it is just fun to put in your hand and and pull off rounds on. Right. It is a different experience. If you haven't ever tried it, you can get out to just about any gun range now that right. has some sort of a rental policy where you can jump into some sort of wheel gun slash revolver and experience what it was like to shoot guns not only back then, but getting into some that are incredibly valuable now. That episode that Chris talked about where we talked about the 10 most prolific firearms in TV and movie history, Volume 1, mm-hmm. which we'll link to in the show notes, is amazing mm-hmm. to think how many different guns there are inside of that list. Oh, yeah. That are revolvers. Sure. There are tons of revolvers inside of the top 10. Well, when you have a movie called Magnum Force, <laughs> I mean, it says it all, doesn't it? I mean, that that revolved around a particular gun. Yeah. It, it's amazing, and it's fun to see the firearms. The last thing I wanted to talk about, because we started this off with weapons, is the very first video that I found inside of Tommy's channel that talks about the hidden weapons of criminals. Mm-hmm. Tommy, you've got a series of, I think it's now three or four different videos that I'm assuming are stuff that you actually find while either on duty or like things that you go and acquire after finding them on duty that will absolutely curl any law enforcement officers and humans' toes. Yeah, it's frightening. It's amazing what you can find at a flea market these days. Sure. And uh, anytime I find something new, I like to go to the flea market. Like when I find something new on the street that I mm-hmm. recover from somebody that's a weapon, that's like hidden inside of a comb or mm-hmm. hidden in somebody's wallet or inside a little pack of lips, a little container of lipstick or something. I like to yep. go to the flea market and find out where the things are coming from and get a copy of it because I use them as training aids. Right. Much much to the chagrin of the guys that I train, but I train people at my department and I like to use those as training aids with people in the car to try to get across to them that you can't take things for what they look like. Right. Absolutely. There's a, something that's a comb that you would normally dismiss. could easily be a knife. Uh, you can't just leave combs and wallets and keychains and stuff in people's pockets when you're transporting them if you've got to have somebody under arrest. Because things that look like nothing could easily be used to conceal a weapon. There's even, I haven't gotten one yet, but I want to make a video on the little wallet holsters right. where you can put a little 25 caliber Ruger LCP or a Beretta Jetfire, a little 25 or 32 caliber Caltex. In a holster and slide it in your back pocket, and it looks from the outside of the pocket for all the world just like a wallet right. in somebody's pocket. It's something that guys will miss on pat downs that we've actually had people catch coming into the local county courthouse trying to pass them through security by saying, "Oh, I've got a, a metal plate in my leg or something like that." Right. The sheriff's deputies come across a little pistol and a, and a wallet holster in their back pocket. Right. Yeah, and the the other things we've seen where they they will take toy guns, you know, and a lot of times toy makers will make guns not look like a real gun for mm-hmm. safety purposes and such. You see some of these big water guns and such. But I've seen where they actually take the outsides of those and mold, you know, a real gun mm-hmm. on the interior. So you you know, you're thinking, no, well that's, you know, that that gun is orange and yellow and green. That's not a real gun, but they're retrofitting some of these. I, I mean, it's it's intuitive what they come up with, but at the same time, from a law enforcement standpoint, 
it's frightening. Yeah, fr- frightening, I think, is being kind. And you guys are both talking about something that I love that happens inside of the cauldron slash chemistry set of two guys talking in general, is that the knowledge that's conveyed through stuff like this perspective review, and in particular inside the stuff like Tommy's videos at free field training inside of YouTube, is exactly why I podcast. Mm-hmm. The knowledge, the little nugget of I need to be more observant about life is why I podcast. And it's also why Tommy makes this, continues to build onto this wonderful library of intuitive knowledge that is great for people that are in law enforcement, but not just people that are in law enforcement. It's for people, period, paragraph. Right. And I love that. It It is intoxicating to me. And that zeal to want to not only learn and acquire the knowledge, but then to spill it onto other people, it does fuel me. People need to be educated. They need to be vigilant. It's not just the police. The lack of trigger discipline is off the charts. So we have this scene where Craigie... Scenes. Scenes. Where? (laughs) I think every time anybody's got anything like a gun in their hand, it's all just... It's completely off the charts here. And we we have it where Craigie, I guess, shoots the kid. He's drunk. You know, they, they made it a point to say he's sitting in the park, he's drinking... You know, he's the he's the old burned-out cop. He gets up there and he shoots this kid mm-hmm. illegally, right? Mm-hmm. It's not a good shoot. And that kind of rounds out the entire atmosphere and plot of the movie. I think what I find that's fun is when I meet people that are almost always initially skittish about mm-hmm. firearms. Mm-hmm. Like if just you'll walk up to somebody and say, you'll have to strike up a conversation about firearms or movies or whatever – and if you happen to get to the part where, you know, who, who's crazy enough to carry a gun? And I go, well, I'm, I'm actually carrying a gun right now. Right. And, and you can just watch eyebrows come off people's faces like, what? You've got right. to be kidding me. Right. And then mentioning, you know, there's all kinds of rules and training and awesome that is surrounded by people, traditionally, sure. that jump into conceal and carry. Right. And that is, it's like an alien landscape on a different planet that you need to have some sort of environmental suit on to somehow assimilate Mm -hmm. and it's not it's just a matter of accumulating more knowledge and incorporating that into your life fold that's it it's not it's not rocket science and what what you'll see here inside of i'm not kidding i I, every single time that i looked inside this movie uh, when i refer to trigger discipline is unless you're pointing a gun at somebody something that you're going to destroy which you should assume it's always pointed at something you're going to, to going to destroy your finger should never be on the trigger. Right. Now, as movies have progressed, especially through the late 80s into the now, they'll actually have people on set that are the prop masters, Mm -hmm. the firearms masters that are actually taking care and instructing people how to use the firearms. So the trigger discipline stuffs have gone way up in regard to being on. Right. But inside of this movie, it's terrible. Right. Everybody is ready to draw down and muzzling everybody as well. Muzzling is when you're passing the end of any gun, whether it's a long rifle, a right. machine you're gun. You're going to laser somebody with the sight or with, right. the, with the front the right. barrel. Right. And, and it, it's terrible inside this movie. Right. While they may have used that cop as a potential consultant for the film, mm-hmm. what they didn't do was make sure that anybody had a handgun in their hand and was being safe with a handgun. Right. And not just, just to that, but... Referring to the scene, you know, I can go back and tell you that in the state of Missouri, we used to have a law, well, we still have the law, unlawful use of a weapon. Mm-hmm. That statute at one time, 
it made it illegal for you to be intoxicated and be in a possession of a firearm. Mm-hmm. As we progressed in Missouri with concealed carry and then to constitutional carry, a lot of times what was happening, police officers would pull somebody over for drinking and driving. They'd mm-hmm. be DWI. And they'd have their gun in the car because once concealed carry came about, legally you could have a gun in the car. Mm-hmm. So what happened was you got charged with DWI. You also got charged with unlawful use of a weapon because you were intoxicated. You were in possession of a firearm. Now, to me, common sense would be don't run around drunk with a firearm. But they had, I guess, so many of those cases that they pulled that portion of the statute. So intoxication and possession of a firearm is no longer illegal under that statute, which I think is a shame. It'd be great but, for Craigie, though, I guess. But right? uh, it would be it would be great for him. Yeah, he he wouldn't have been, <laughs> he wouldn't have been in violation. And I don't know how that differs, Tommy. How anything? Any insight? As to the statutes and, and laws and ordinances that you have up, up there, is that is that accurate, or how do you guys do it? Well, when Illinois just jumped into, we, uh, the state of Illinois was actually just forced by a federal court to enact a shall-issue concealed carry program, okay. and the laws are in a constant state of flux, so it, it might change by the time this is even cut up and released. Right. But as of right now, they're still on the books here, part of the concealed carry statute, was that a concealed carry permit holder, uh, it's a misdemeanor offense to be in possession of a firearm while you're intoxicated. Okay. The same as it is to be in actual physical possession of a car while you're intoxicated. Okay. Yeah, ours was, and ours was a felony. It was a felony if you were intoxicated in possession of a firearm. Now Missouri's progressed to constitutional carry. And I'm, and you know, just for the record, I'm, I'm great with gun ownership. I'm good with the Second Amendment. And I'm good with concealed carry. Constitutional carry has uh, basically eliminated the need for any type of training. I'm a big person on education and training. Me too. I believe yep. if, you, if you're going to carry a gun, you need to educate yourself. You need to train yourself both to be proficient with that weapon. You need to know the legalities. Uh, you know what? You need to know the emotional fallout of pointing a real gun at a real person or potentially having to shoot somebody. You need to know that, and you need to keep up with that. So we've progressed constitutional carry. It's uh, allowed our citizens to carry firearms uh, without any type of permit and such. And I do believe that it does at times help us keep law and order. I just would like the aspect of having to train on the tools that you carry. I would too. I think that something like that is vital. And I don't think that the constitutional carry became a misstep at the beginning of this year, 2017. Mm -hmm. But again, anytime that you exclude the reason of education inside of the process Mm -hmm. of acquiring anything, doesn't make any difference what it is. If you don't have to learn about what it is you're getting. Right. Okay, well, there's a reason why you don't just, the instant you turn 16, here's a car. Right. Okay, well, it doesn't work that way. Right. And so I, I would very much like to see some more education be put back into legislation that would help people get that fundamental building block right. part of what happens with a firearm. For their safety, yeah. for their protection. Well, for everybody's safety. That's Absolutely. Sure. If we can step back into the scene for just a minute, yeah, yeah. Let's, let's take a look and contrast how it went down in the movie, how it would go down today. Sure. You know, what happens in the movie is the detective is intoxicated. Mm-hmm. He shoots this kid. He's not, just having a nip from the flask. He's just Captain. having a yeah, good grief. Yeah, he looked. He looked a little. You sure are a, zealous. He looked. It looked like he fell off the left side of the wagon. There. <laughs> he shoots this kid. 
It's not a good shoot. And then he has the other detective, the younger detective, who reluctantly covers up for him. Mm -hmm. These days, I don't see it going down like that. I would see, you know, I mean, you have that occur. You have an investigation, you know, right off the bat. I don't, I don't know that fellow officer was going to, is going to cover up like that. I don't know. So it's, it is Hollywood, but then again, it's a different era. It's an era that I did not police in. So, you know, my take on it is that these days that's not going to happen. That's not going to happen with modern day law enforcement. You have a drunk cop that goes into uh, this situation, shoots a kid. First of all, I would hope, and I believe these days, you have a drunk cop, he's not going into the situation. Somebody's going to stop him. Some, some other police officer that has integrity, that has a reasonable sense, is not going to let him go in. Because back me up on this, Tommy, if you got somebody out there that's intoxicated, that's backing you up, they're putting you in danger. And more than just that, I mean, like, he's putting me in danger, and how can I trust the person that's drunk on the job? Yeah, absolutely. Decision, especially going into a situation like this, but just on a day-to-day basis. I don't yeah. want him driving a car with me in it. Absolutely. Or a firearm. He's... I couldn't see that going down. As we get into more of these situations, we'll go ahead and talk, continue to talk about the good cop, bad cop issues these days and working alongside somebody who is displaying this behavior, how it's 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 just not tolerated these days. Yeah, there's a couple other things I wanted to talk about when we talk about how it's shown and how it would go down inside this scene. Uh-huh. Something else that is huge that I know people just throw out the window while in the same breath saying, well, wait a second, I've seen it on CSI, why doesn't it work? And the answer is fingerprints. Right. If this guy just shot at you and missed or was going to shoot you and was holding the gun, how is it exactly that your fingerprints are on the palm of this gun that is in his hand? Well, and I think that goes to the scene where the investigation was, eh, you know, we're going to get into an office, we're going to talk about it a little bit. No, it wouldn't be that. Right. The other thing, too, is there was no rush to render medical aid, to call an ambulance. I mean, there's a kid with two bullet holes in him. There would also be an investigation, you know, yeah. as far as as yeah. far as the shooting goes. That's how that's how that goes down these days. You were mentioning, you know, what about the fingerprints on the gun? You know, Craigie's fingerprints that are still on the gun. All of that would would come out. You know, you look at the incidents that we've had here in St. Louis or in Ferguson, where mm-hmm. we had the Michael Brown shooting. That was a massive crime scene and investigation, and that was uh, a an incident where you had a subject that was aggressive and assaulting a police officer and a shooting that went down. Here you have a situation where a kid walks out and a kid gets shot. Mm-hmm. Certainly these days it's going to be a massive investigation and a lot of those things are going to come out that really didn't flush out in this movie and make it realistic. I understand that it's Hollywood yeah. and I also understand that it's 1985, but one of the questions that we got to ask is is that reality for 1985 or is that Hollywood for 1985? I got to stick up for my profession, and a lot of times Hollywood perceives this is how police work is, even back in 1985, Mm -hmm. and they go with that. And that's exactly my point that I was trying to make before. When you set that precedence, a lot of times people see that in movies and films, and they think that's reality, and that's the reality of our profession. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. The other thing that I wanted to make sure we focus on is that that's a really nice gun that he gives up. It's a great ankle-based second gun that he gives up, and I'm just curious if either of you have that serial number sawed-off ankle gun on your person right now. Uh, Tommy, do you happen to have one of those? 
Just curious. I, I, I'm fairly certain that would be a felony. Right. right. And, uh, would would exactly. question my job and land me up in federal prison if I had a serial number exactly. off of my gun. Yeah, yeah and Chris, and I'm my, just... My, uh, backup, my backup gun is more expensive than most people's duty guns, so I don't think I'd be giving that up for anything. Right, right. Yeah, and, and, and Chris, I'm assuming you left your uh, serial number sawed off in your other suit. They rarely right? give me a gun. Um, you know, when I leave the office, they... Captain, here, we're going to give you your gun. Here's three bullets. And, and then he, I and then I go out. But, here's, the, here's the instruction manual for the steering wheel inside of your vehicle. Right. Have a great day. Yes. Yeah, don't hit the siren on the way out of the lot. <laughs> but, and that's another thing, too. This, he's wearing it down on his ankle. I mean, these days with the technology that we have, touch DNA and stuff, they're going to figure it out. The detail in some of these scenes, they didn't think about. But, hey, let's go back to why we watched the movie. Chuck Norris is in it. Yeah, too, too true. The other thing to remember, too, is, and, again, I haven't been in enough... Projects, which actually brings us to another great question for Tommy. Tommy, does this apartment building look at all familiar? Do, do you police areas like this, or those are Chicago row houses? Mm-hmm. And it was it was really entertaining the first time I saw the movie preparing for this that they got the the painting scaffold from one house to the other because I've actually caught kids <laughs> doing similar things to climb from their apartment building, their six flat apartment building, across to an abandoned apartment building next door. That's a a very common style of building here. Wow. That's amazing. And I I have to be totally candid, Tommy, that if if I had not found your channel on YouTube, this perspective review, even though my mom was in the movie, probably would never have happened. Uh, Having literal police boots on the ground inside of anywhere mm-hmm. Chicago right. is the instant yes we must do this perspective review because I, and again as we get into more scenes coming up here that I even have listed uh, there's going to be so much perspective that you're going to convey and it is perfect inside this perspective review of 1985's Code of Silence Chris it's great that you brought up the investigation tell me how would this get processed nowadays tell us more well today in, in Chicago and in everywhere in Illinois the Illinois State Police runs what's called the State Police Public Integrity Task Force and what happens is if a, a municipal or a county police officer or a state trooper gets involved in an officer involved shooting it gets investigated from multiple different angles mm. the state police come in with a task force of detectives whose only job is to investigate use of force incidents with police departments and they collect the information from the crime scene investigators and from the crime lab, and they investigate independently whether or not it was a good shoot. And then they make their determination of whether or not it was a good shoot, and they forward that to the state's attorney's office. And in parallel with that, state's attorney's offices have an investigations unit. They have mainly retired police officers mm. who work as investigators for the state's attorney. And they would also have people coming out. And then it would be investigated from a third vantage point by whoever the primary jurisdiction agency is. So in this case, Chicago PD would have detectives from outside that unit that would be investigating the case from the other side of it, from the ag assault of a police officer for the the kid that was allegedly pointing a gun at the detective who had shot him. So you'd have at least three different agencies coming at the investigation, sharing information, and trying to determine whether or not it was a good shooting and what had actually occurred. And there have been incidences where guys have been caught up planting a weapon on Mm -hmm. the person that they shot, and those people have been dealt with very, very harshly, both by public integrity and by the state's attorney's investigators, and the state's attorney's office ended up getting murder charges off of forensic evidence on the case. You guys brought up the the fingerprints, but oftentimes it's things that no one would ever think about that end up 
tanking someone who's dirty like that. Yeah. Right. There was a police officer several years ago who was in an officer-involved shooting, and the person that he had shot, he alleged, had pulled a knife out on him. And when they pulled the medical records, this is how far they go into investigating this, they pulled the medical records of the person the officer had shot and found out that he was allergic to cats. And when they sent the knife to the crime lab, they had pulled cat fur mm-hmm. out of the knife. Right. And wow. they ended up getting a warrant for that officer's house and taking a sample from his cat and matching the fur matching from inside the, the knife he said the gentleman had had with the fur from his cat and getting a DNA match on it and charging him with murder. And, you know, rightfully Safety. so. Wow. Rightfully so. We, wow. ju- we just can't, ha- yeah. can't have that in our profession. And it's one of the things that, you know, we said that we were going to talk about and might as well talk about it now. You know, I've said this before, and uh, Tommy, you chime in too. I've said this before. You know, my 26th year in law enforcement, and I go back to when I took the oath and when others, you know, in my profession took that oath. If I stand up and I believe in that enough to go out every day, put my life on the line, have my guys go put their lives on the line, the last thing I want to do is be standing next to somebody who doesn't believe in that oath and holds the integrity that I do of what I said and what I committed to. I just can't have that in my profession. That makes good police officers like Tommy and others who believe in that look bad. And we just can't have that. And what I've seen what I've seen over the years as is an intolerance from good cops mm-hmm. toward bad cops. Mm-hmm. They they just they don't want to work around somebody like that. They don't want that. They want that integrity, that honor, because they're going out risking their lives every night. They're telling their families, I might not come home, yet I got somebody standing next to me that's doing wrong, that's tainting that image and making it harder in the long run to do the job. When you have a, a cop that's not doing the right thing, who's not being ethical in the profession, it, it hurts everyone. Not, not only does it hurt him and the profession, but it hurts the other officers that they're working with. It makes my job right. twice as hard when I deal with someone who's had a bad experience with another police officer. Right. And when you have somebody that's going out purposely creating those bad experiences with police officers by being dirty, by doing things illegally, it makes it harder on all of us. And that's why I'm so passionate about training. I'm a field training officer right. in my agency, which is what started up into the YouTube channel, is that I want to get the guys right when they come out from the academy, their first experiences on the street, and get them on the right track so that hopefully we don't have to fix problems later on. It's always easier to fix somebody and weed out the people that are going to be problems early on in a career than it is after they have 15, 20 years on. And I think that's something that this movie actually displays quite well. Right. I absolutely agree. Uh, I have to totally tell you guys that that is exactly what I love inside of podcasters as well. I've worked with every kind of podcaster you can think of, whether it's somebody that just said, hey, man, I want to start a podcast. What do we do? Mm -hmm. To someone that's been in radio for longer than I've been alive who now wants to start a podcast. And there's no doubt about what Tommy is talking about, not only inside of law enforcement, but inside of, I think, life, Mm -hmm. where people that are set inside of their habits and mind think and have no interest in acquiring or assimilating other knowledge. Right. It is a rough road to hoe. It's, right. uh, it's it's very difficult. More importantly, it really does stretch every realm of possibility when it comes to having a good time. Right. I, I think a, a lot of people are under the impression that people become cops to be miserable and to be angry, and that's why they're murdering so many people. Mm-hmm. And that's not the case at all. The, the, the whole point right. is that there is a code 
to be followed. Right. That there is, and it's not a code of silence. Uh, there is integrity to be shined. There is law to right. be enforced, and that is the goal. That has has nothing to do with being angry and murdering people, and that's why jumping into so much detail inside of a thing like this perspective review is so key. Well, and the bottom line too is without the cooperation and the trust of the community and the public, you can't do your job. Right. We had, right. you know, years ago when I was coming into policing and, you know, some of the old ways of policing were going out, it was, hey, we're in charge, we're trained, we know better, you know, we don't talk to the media, we don't, you know, we the public doesn't know as much as we do, and we just go and we do what we do. They started bringing back an older concept of community policing, reaching out and making community partnerships and so forth. Mm-hmm. But that's what... That's the foundation of everything in policing. Yeah. Everything. You know, as far as uh, information gathering, public trust. If you've got people out there that trust you, they're going to tell you things. They're right. going to tell you what's going on. Right. And reaching out to that. Once you lose that, I've seen communities that don't have it. It goes bad. Yeah. Quickly. Even inside of the, we can say the words darkest communities, referring to <clears throat> where there is a lot of nefarious stuff going on. What you'll find even in those darkest communities is a sense of allegiance to making sure that the right things happen when there is a relationship that's built with either law enforcement or the people that can enforce law. And, and well, even that's in, a, even that's in a, the worst neighborhoods, it's less than 5% of the people that get 95% right. of right. the attention of law enforcement, which means it's the <clears> other 95% of people that we're working for. Right. right. So and those the, are and people that we're trying to protect. Right. They get and victimized. Community policing helps that immensely, but I'll, I'll take it a step further in that community policing, when it began coming back, started off as a division within a police department. That's that right. Community policing. It, not the entire organization. Meetings and you'd send somebody right. to the high school to talk to kids. And I'm, I'm happy to say that at least in the area that I'm at, community policing has become less of a division and more of an activity where everyone is more of a mindset. responsible. Yep. It's everybody's responsibility to be involved. Right. Community policing in their little way during the day. That's when you go into a shop talking with the other people that are in line and knowing how to talk with people on calls to get the community on your side to know that you're there to help them. You know that you're there to protect that 95% of the community and that we're not going to leave them out to dry with the 5% right. that gets most of our attention. And when the community knows that you have their back, they have yours. That's what works. Like I said, Gathering information, resources, cooperation with people. I mean, let's face it, uh, Tommy, what's the percentage where you actually see a crime in progress as opposed to somebody else, an independent witness, observes a crime in progress? It's rare that, you know, in my experiences, that law enforcement witnesses that firsthand. You need that community. You need the, the cooperation of the people. And if you don't have that, it really hinders you. Yeah, definitely, especially with violent crime. Yep. It's not unusual to get to the scene of a violent crime. You might hear it happening from three blocks away and then get there within a minute. Right. But to actually have it happen in front of you is actually extraordinarily rare. Right, right. A nod to police cars that matter. We see so many kick-ass ultra you got to be kidding me i can't believe i just saw that police car police cars inside this movie it's amazing to me mm-hmm. tommy i also wanted to make sure that we focus on your video that you just put on on the intertubes via free field training over on youtube about undercover police vehicles which i thought was extraordinary mm-hmm. thank you you know everybody's got the concept of oh hey it's an undercover police car 
Okay. When in reality, it's not an undercover police car, you jackass. And I, it's I, the, like an the, unmarked the, car. Yeah, the, the tenor that Tommy takes in it, I think, is extremely well placed. Okay. The, the, the detail that he showers on you on the different types of cars that you're going to see, plus the ones that you never really thought you would see as an undercover police, police car, uh, which actually leads perfectly into what we see for, and Tommy's already talked about it, the one that Chuck Norris is driving inside of this mm-hmm. inside of this movie, it, it you know it's it's the one that absolutely blends in. Okay. On top of Tommy's videos, we've also talked about great police vehicles inside of the two guys talking cars cone of information, where Chris, my two guys talking cars co-host Ron Ryling and I, mm-hmm. actually detailed the top ten best ever police vehicles inside of TV and movie history. Yeah, and I find it interesting that Tommy has a video out there that details undercover police cars or what people in the public perceive as undercover police cars. I can tell you myself, I drive a silver police interceptor. So it's a it's a Ford Taurus, basically, but mm-hmm. it's got a police interceptor package on it. Mm-hmm. And people would say, well, that's an undercover car. Well, it's not really an undercover car. And we're talking about, <laughs> you know, we're talking about the units, you know, maybe the people that are in undercover units and such. Mm-hmm. They're not driving, you know, Something that has police written across the back or or even the police interceptor logo or an antenna. They're you not? Know, I, I mean, well, I, <laughs> I, I know it's a surprise. But, you know, I, I, can, I can tell you from years and years ago, and we don't own this vehicle anymore, but years and years ago, what a lot of times what they would do is when they would go in for a large drug seizure, they would seize all the assets to include cars. I remember we had a car that was forfeited over to us, and it was a... Ford Mustang that was all kind of tricked out and, mm-hmm. and we turned it into a dare car mm-hmm. and it was it ran like just a piece of junk I think we got the uh, mm-hmm. it was 17 cars seized and we didn't get the Corvette we got this thing but it looked good they put you know they put some decals and they stuff put on some it. decals on it and sure. and such and as we've already learned up in Chicago land the, occasionally they will drive an impounded car it's it's all about fitting in but you know, jumping into a police car that you perceive just because there's no lights on the top, there's no light bar, it's unmarked, it's not necessarily an undercover car. Is that kind of the gist of the the video, Tommy? Yeah, they, they, I get a lot. People ask about undercover cars or unmarked cars, mm-hmm. and it, it always becomes contentious with people because everybody thinks that they see undercover police cars all over the place. Right. But you don't really see, you don't remember what you didn't see. Right. If that makes sense, right? Like everybody makes remembers sense. the time they saw the Ford Crown Vic that was white with the cage still in the back and the right. red and blue lights on the back deck. And they go, oh, that's another. I see undercover police cars all the time. Right. But what they don't see is the ones that come from an impound lot or get seized. In fact, we've had cars that were seized right. that looked so ridiculous, right? And were were so silly as an undercover car that we've used right. for drug investigations yep. and for our detective division to surveil a location that we've actually had our guys from Public Works, where we go to get gasoline right. from the city, report the police officers who are showing up with the cars <laughs> and filling them with city gas. Yeah, absolutely. They were stealing gasoline to put in their personal car. Yep, and I can see that. And, you know, a lot of, you know, a lot of those guys, not to, not to go into things that we shouldn't talk and can't talk about, but I can tell you that a lot of those guys that, that they get that, that operate in some of those units, they don't look like cops at all. <laughs> yeah. At all. Yeah. So... 
you know. Yeah. It, again, it's a it's a it's a nod to the knowledge, and the cars that are shown here are just extraordinary. Many of them are the same vintage of car that are shown inside of the Blues Brothers, and a bunch of really great Chicago-based stuff. It's even a nod to the art that I used for that. 10 mm-hmm. most prolific police vehicles right. in TV movie history. Because I took a, that colloquial white car with blue stripes, Chicago police car, mm-hmm. and then put on the graphics to have that. It's, it's great. We'll link that up inside the show notes for this episode, inside the show notes. Does 600 man hours over the course of a month sound like a lot for investigation work like this one? Well, it depends on how many people you have. You have 600 people, that's only one hour. Well, if you have Chuck Norris, then 600 man hours happens instantaneously. Right. <laughs> I don't know. What do you think, Tommy? I, I don't know. You know, how many were people? How many people were in the gang squad? I think they had eight guys. Yeah, that sounds yeah, about so, reddish. Yeah. And then, I mean, like, and how six, long would six, an operation like this? 600 go? man hours over what period of time? I didn't catch it. What was the uh, length of time I, they I had? Don't, they didn't say. I don't think that they actually said. But I mean, yeah. what is a what is, what is an investigation of this size going to take, Captain? Uh, you know, with all the drug I mean, uh, dealings you have, multi-kilo <laughs> investigation involving actually like major movers. Yeah, to that level, it's that's something that would take a significant amount of time yeah. to get done because it wouldn't just have been this one buy. Right, they would have had to work their way up to that level, and they would have to, had to have worked multiple, multiple, you know, informants, roll multiple people, and and so forth. So yeah, it, it, and there's there's layers of security and trust that they would have had to get through all the way up. So eight people, 600 man hours. Yeah, they put a lot of time in that if that, you know, if that's what they're they're claiming. Now is that 600 man hours with a flask? So that Well, Craigie's I don't know Craig <laughs> Craigie's man hours are interpreted differently. <laughs> differently. Uh, he's always on duty. It's at the time. They only count for half an hour for every hour that he's actually Yeah, it, they didn't say they didn't say 600 quality man hours. <laughs> Well, that's never a guarantee anywhere. Right. Yeah, exactly. The taste of Silva. Wow. The impact of Silva inside this movie is extraordinary. He's one of the very few villains from the 80s films that all he has to do is actually appear. Right. I don't think he actually has to say anything. He's always a nut, right? I mean, he looks he looks the part. Yeah, he, he just has that look about him. And again... Was am I wrong? Wasn't he in Above the Law too, in the Steven Seagal film? Was he the bad guy in that? It sounds like you're painting with a pretty wide brush there. Captain. I know I shouldn't, but you know, <laughs> but I just can't help myself. <laughs> the bottom line is maybe, it's I, Sil- maybe I'm wrong. The bottom line is that Silva's incredibly prolific inside of this film. He's perfectly placed as the uber badass inside right. of this one. The psycho. Yeah, yeah. Which actually brings us to the Colombian necktie. Right. Tommy, how many Colombian neckties have you involved in an investigation process recently? I have never, I have never seen that. Yeah, me neither. What? <laughs> I just saw it. What are you talking about? I saw it. I saw. I've seen it in several movies. I've never seen it on the job. So, like, like I said before, Hollywood versus reality. Yeah. The scene inside of this film where they show what Tommy says is the international super american port what did you say it was tommy it's the illinois international port that's what i said uh, sure you did. Th- that scene right there where they bring chuck over to pull back the sheet and witness the mm-hmm. Colombian necktie but never show it to the audience right i have to tell you how brilliant that is sure that is exactly how 
and I will take this to my grave. That is exactly how all of the gruesome gruesomeness that happens inside of modern day television right. should be paid off. It, right. it, it is a reasonably bloody sheet. It isn't showcased no. detailedly no. to an audience. It's not glamorized. And most importantly, it allows your brain to think how ghastly the thing is Absolutely. that you have not seen. Absolutely. I, I will, That's like reading a book. It's always worse. The carnage is always worse in a book when you read it. That's right. Imagine it in your head. That's right. It is when somebody tries to show it on film. Yeah. You you allow yeah. the reader or the viewer that creative angle to develop that themselves. Yeah. It's always more impactful. I was just listening to another episode of Jocko Podcast, which we're going to link to inside of the show notes for this episode, over at JockoPodcast.com. And Jocko is a former Navy SEAL. Mm-hmm. He and his brethren were in charge of the defense of Ramadi during 2006 and seven, and. Mm-hmm. Uh, what he does is he brings on vets and talks about their stories and family, blah. And what is extraordinary is his readings that he'll do during those episodes. And it is exactly what Tommy is talking about, where mm-hmm. listening to Jocko read off what's being detailed mm-hmm. and then allowing you to take your imagination and paint the picture. Right. It, it is extraordinary. And right. it's why I listen to his podcast so often, because it it, it is. It allows you to imagine what is being painted rather than having to see pictures or watch the video of whatever happened. Right. Uh, It's extraordinary. It also speaks to great storytelling, which again, this is a wonderful piece of storytelling. The alternative, alternative career. You know, this is something that struck me as uh, a small detail that may be overlooked Mm -hmm. throughout this movie, but it's something that hits close to home. What you see throughout the movie is Dennis Fiorina mm-hmm. speaking with Chuck Norris, and he continually comes up with these crazy ideas mm-hmm. to do something other than law enforcement. Mm-hmm. But I got to tell you, after so many years in law enforcement, <laughs> it starts to break you down. It starts to wear you down, and you start to think, how does the other side function? How does the private sector function? What if it would be like, when I went to work, what would it, what would it be like if when I went to work, I didn't have to make 4,000 decisions and people's lives didn't depend on it. What if I just owned a fish store and all I had to decide was, do I sell the goldfish or do I sell the carp or do I sell the, you know, the, the pond, whatever. You would be a great fish salesman. I would be an excellent fish salesman. But what I'm saying is this is not an unrealistic thing. I see cops do this a lot Mm -hmm. and start thinking about something outside the realm of law enforcement mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. uh you know i take it my, myself 23 years old when i got into law enforcement it's really the only career that i know mm-hmm. so i don't know how the private sector functions i don't know how the life outside of law enforcement may be and every once in a while when you get too much of it you start thinking boy i could go over there just like fiorina we could go we could go down and start doing mail order christmas trees you know, I think that was one of his mm-hmm. his sidebar mm-hmm. uh, the, the other one that I remember vividly was, you know, how about an alligator farm? An alligator farm, yeah, right. Awesome. <laughs> Absolutely. I, I need some boots, man. <clears throat> Absolutely. Are you kidding me? And I don't think that it goes to those extremes, but <laughs> the, the clearer <laughs> message to me is anything but continuing to come in and do the job. You know, he got shot in the foot. He's talking about this in the first scene while he's sitting in the garbage <laughs> truck. And he's thinking, you know, I just want to go home to my family after I take care of the alligators, you know, sell some. And what would that be like 
it's it's a question that I've come across during my career, and I think other cops have too because I see them asking it. I see them going out and and investigating mm-hmm. other avenues of what they're going to do later in life. And and Tommy Tommy has a YouTube channel. I always appreciate law enforcement that's diverse, that branches out, that says, you know what, I've got something else. I've got a skill set, but I'm going to take that and I'm going to. I'm going to utilize that. I'm going to utilize that to help other people, to help other law enforcement. And it's going to be, it might be in the same, it might utilize my expertise, but it's going to make me diverse and I'm going to go out into that realm. Tommy, what, what's your thoughts on that? Having a side job or something that deviates from the normal law enforcement tone? Well, I've always had side jobs. I've always worked security. In fact, now I still work some short notice security where people meet people immediately. There's a couple of people that call me if they need security, but going into a job that's completely unrelated or mostly unrelated to law enforcement is something that I see more and more guys doing lately. In fact, one of my bosses owns a sandwich shop that he right. bought about a year ago. Right. He's a lieutenant at my PD, and right. he opened a chain restaurant, a chain sandwich shop, Right. as a retirement plan. Right. Where he starts it now, he's five years from retirement, and hopefully in five years, He's got a whole other career to start. Right. I went into doing the YouTube thing because it's nice to have an extra job on the side right. where I can interact with the, the next generation of police work, and, and it's a job that can yep. bring a little bit of revenue in that I can do sitting at home while drinking coffee instead of driving a car at 100 miles an hour and right. chasing idiots through gangways over dime bags. Right, right. And I've seen, I've seen quite a few guys go the restaurant route. It actually hit home a little bit when they were talking about selling hot dogs right, yep. at the ballpark and getting free games. Yep. Because I know more than one cop that's gone into buying a little restaurant, buying a little hot dog stand, yep. and making a go either after retirement or right before retirement of going into that completely different line of work. And if you've got a 401k or a pension to, to cash out, right, it's a, a realistic goal for a guy to have to open a little restaurant. And I, I don't know. I think, it's, I think going into something on the side like that or having a secondary job Mm-hmm. Even if it's just security, right, keeps you more in touch with the people that you're serving as a police officer. That's like right. We, get, we go to work and deal with police officers all day, and we go right. fishing, and we go fishing with other cops, and we go drinking after work. We go to the cop bar, which we see in Code of Silence a couple right. of times. Right, The scenes inside of the bar, and it's all police work, police work, police work. And I right. think doing things outside of police work can give us perspective yep. on the job that we're doing. And it also makes for a really good fantasy. It's Right. Some people's version of buying a lottery ticket and thinking, oh, maybe I'll never have to come to work again someday. Right, right. Yeah, and it's, it's it, you know, with, with myself and my own experiences, I can tell you I write, published five books, and just getting into that realm, you know, the, the, the realm of law enforcement as opposed to the literary world is just miles different. But the experience was great, and a lot of cops, I think, go into these things as a therapeutic thing. You know, you get too much of it. You get too much of that, and it, it taxes you. And over so many years, you start thinking, well, where, where am I going to be after this? What am I going to do after this? And I just want to take a break, and I want to get outside the realm of this culture that I'm in because it, it does get addictive. It does get it does suck you in, and it does. And you know what? After a period of time, it breaks you down. Mm-hmm. You see too much. Yeah. Uh, We're running long inside this perspective review of 1985's Code of Silence, starring Chuck Norris. We will be right back. 
The history of hostage and crisis negotiation is filled with action, danger, emotion, and perspective. Be sure to learn more about the history of hostage and crisis negotiation inside Crisis Cops, the evolution of hostage negotiations in America. Order it now at twoguystalking.com slash crisiscops. That's twoguystalking.com slash crisiscops. The Two Guys Talking Podcast Bug, a truly original autonomous mobile recording solution. Get bit by the podcast bug. www.podcastbug.com. The one question each podcaster should be asking themselves is why am I still editing my own podcast? Mike Wilkerson from the Two Guys Talking Podcast here. I've podcasted and edited for over a decade, and I know what an hour and a half podcast turns into when you get in front of the editing stack. Let me tell you, it's not an hour and a half. It's closer to probably double that time. Are you ready to hand off the time you're wasting editing your own podcast? Looking for a cost-effective solution that doesn't break the bank, that gives you super experienced, quality podcasting back to you in a short period of time? Be sure to check out the Editor Core. Whether you're looking to have your podcast edited, or if you edit podcasts and are looking for some extra cash, Editor Core is your way to help every podcast soar. Make your podcast soar with the Editor Core. EditorCore.com. That's EditorCore.com. It doesn't always come fast, but it's always free. Join Officer Tommy Model and learn more about vital building blocks when it comes to security and law enforcement during the Free Field Training Podcast. FreeFieldTrainingPodcast.com. That's FreeFieldTrainingPodcast.com. Wouldn't it be cool if your advertising could last forever? It can with perpetual advertising. Here's how it works. Magazine, radio, and television ads are efforts that people might see or hear once, and then they're lost forever. Perpetual advertising provides you with the chance for repeat exposure and replayability weeks, months, even years after it's originally inserted inside a podcast. So even after your advertising is included in a podcast years ago, those efforts are still impactful, providing you with true return on investment. Real impact, thanks to perpetual advertising. Are you ready to change the way you and your company or organization advertises? Find out more and launch a unique perpetual advertising effort right now by visiting twoguystalking.com forward slash sponsors. Hi, I'm Tommy from Free Fail Training on YouTube, and you're listening to the Perspective Review of Code of Silence, starring Chuck Norris. <laughs> Everyone, welcome back to the Perspective Review of 1985's Code of Silence, starring Chuck Norris and a variety of other cool people, weapons, and stuff that you probably shouldn't see on television when it comes to law enforcement. Every Perspective Review contains the goods, but there's also the bad. As much as the three of us can wax philosophic about what's going on inside of this movie, there's also some things that I wanted to bring everybody's attention to. The signing of a petition for a coworker. Yeah, I don't what know. What is this? I don't know that. I don't know that that's going to happen in any era 
of law enforcement. Even if even if you were in what is the an environment? Even if you were in an environment where there was a lot of corruption going on, where you know, I don't know it. You felt compelled to stand up. I, there would be other ways. There would be other avenues that I think that that would go. But to just to describe the scene, there's a petition going around mm-hmm. where everybody's signing for Craigie, mm-hmm. who is involved in this internal investigation because of the shooting. And it, it, it appears that everybody knows everybody knows that Craigie drinks too much, that he may be in trouble for the shooting. But when you have a petition going around, you know, one of the first things that I'm going to ask as an administrator is, why? If he didn't do anything wrong, why are you signing a petition? <laughs> I, I, I want to know what the petition said. It's where I want to ask right. my mom, would you mind contacting the prop handler right. for that movie and getting a copy of the petition? Because I want to know what it I'm says. I'm confident it was a blank piece of paper. You know, while Craigie is a heavy drinker, right. while Craigie does shoot innocent people, you know what? He's really not that bad a guy. Yeah, I'll put my signature on the line okay, for him. Okay, I'm signing too. Tommy, maybe, are you on board? Maybe not. Well, I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny. Uh-huh. It's funny that in the movie they make it sound like it would be unusual for there to be a hearing about an officer-involved shooting. Right, right. And that, that seems that I kind of got the impression that that's where the petition was coming from, was to try to keep there from being a hearing, and that just seems you might be right. ludicrous. Yep. I don't know why anyone would sign that, and I don't right. know why anyone would think that would have any effect on whether or not there would be a hearing. And I think it's very unusual to even think that there wouldn't be a hearing or some type of formal inquiry into an officer-involved shooting. Absolutely. I mean, we, have, we have a formal hearing when someone gets pepper sprayed by <laughs> right. working. Right. Yeah, every use of force incident gets investigated, every right. single one. And That's then there's right. a, a board or a hearing about whether or not that use of force was justified and what lessons can be learned from it. And could you ever see, could you ever see, you know, take, a use of, take a use of force incident where a kid gets killed could you ever see somebody protesting that, like as far as having a signed petition going around the department trying to encourage them not to do a hearing? I just couldn't see it. I, 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 this whole thing was just farcical, and I realize why it was done, yeah. but it is one of the reasons that Chris and I continue podcasting like we do, especially mm-hmm. inside of whatcopswatch.com, because what you see here is just not realistic. Right. There is no time that a fellow cop would be put in front of a bunch of other cops where he can then watch people and see who signs and who signs with fervor and who doesn't sign or who takes the pen and throws the pen away and throws the the clipboard into the air because they're not signing. There would never be an instance like that, especially in today's time. But let's talk about, let's talk about the thin blue line. Let's talk about that. It's a, it's a, it's a concept that, you know, the people want to know about. Does it exist? Is there a brotherhood in law enforcement? Sure there is. Absolutely. Sure. Absolutely. I mean, is it is it family? Absolutely. You don't go into a profession where your life depends on somebody else or vice versa without some type of camaraderie or bond. And people say, well, this is Hollywood depicts it as this. The thin blue line, you're going to stick up for somebody that, well, you know, the, the, he just shot a kid, but he's a cop. You're going to stick. That's not going to happen. That doesn't – that's not – Right. Reality, right? It goes back but, to the integrity you know, call if, that you if, were referring to. Previously. And and you know what? Completely. If if you wanted if you wanted to talk about reality and truthfulness, if a police officer is pulled over and for some type of moving violation, another police officer comes up, is there a chance that he's going to come up break because he's a police? Officer? I'll tell the truth. Yes, it is. It but it depends on the circumstances. 
if it's the 18th time he's been through and this person's a problem, I've seen other police officers write tickets to cop. I but as you as you continue up, I think that Hollywood wants to portray that as, you know, hey, there's this thin blue line, there's this camaraderie that exceeds all bounds. You got to remember, we're human beings. Mm-hmm. And the majority of people that I know in law enforcement are righteous human beings. Mm-hmm. They do what's right. Mm-hmm. And that's not right. They're not going to cover up a murder. They're not going to put their signature, their name on the line for a guy that shot a kid while he was drunk. Mm-hmm. It's just not going to happen. Yeah. Tommy, jump in here. What, what do you think? That's been falsified evidence. That's the real, I mean, that's, that's where even, even the most jaded person has to draw the line is that people make mistakes and, and Craigie in this, it doesn't look like what he was trying to do, what they're displaying in the, the movie wasn't Craigie trying to be spiteful or vindictive right. or trying to go out and hurt someone. Right. But he made a series of terrible mistakes, and those terrible right. mistakes would have been back bad enough. And maybe there would be people on his department that say, well, yeah, Craigie shouldn't have a job, and yeah, Craigie right. should probably be prosecuted for what he did. Right. But, you know, Craigie doesn't deserve a, a murder sentence, doesn't deserve to be in prison for the rest of his life because right. he got put in this situation and he made it worse on himself. But the moment he took an ankle piece out and put it on that kid and lied about it, and especially in law enforcement, it's much easier to forgive a mistake of the mind than it is a mistake of the heart. heart. Absolutely. People I, can make mistakes on the job and we can understand them, but when they make a mistake of the heart, the guy that steals drug money from the drug dealer or right. plants a weapon on someone after they've had a use of force incident, whether it's a mistake or not, once you've proven that that person has made that intentional decision of the heart to do right. the wrong thing and to right. cover the investigation up, that's where everybody that I know would back away from us. Absolutely. Like, we don't want anything to do with this guy. Absolutely. And I'm glad that you brought that point up. When we talk about, you know, no, I, when I say nobody's above the law, police officers aren't above the law either. We have to, we have to abide by the same laws and need to be treated like everyone else. But I'll take that the other way, too, because I've seen it. I've seen it the other way. If a police officer is involved in something and they make a mistake and they commit a crime, I've seen where they're held accountable, and sometimes it's to a higher standard. And I don't agree with that either. You know what? Treat them just the same as you treat everybody else. I've seen where we've had uh, cases, and I've seen cases where police officer was involved in a stealing, you know, felony stealing. And it goes down to the courts, and there was a propensity to say, "Wait a minute, we're going to send them. We're going to send them to, to prison for five years or whatever." You wouldn't do that to anyone else. The, the criminal justice system, you know, first-time offenders, that doesn't happen. But because they're a police officer, we're treating them differently. I don't believe in that either. Mm-hmm. If the criminal justice system is to be applied equally, then it is to be applied equally. I will be the first one to stand up and say, "Look." Just because you have a badge doesn't mean that you're above the law, that you're you're different from everybody else. But I'll also be the first one to stand up and say, hey, don't treat them differently because they're a cop. Ah, the robot. I, I realize that it is, it is a crutch that the movie <laughs> uses as uh, an entertainment piece. Sure. Duh. Uh, it, it's absolutely there. But... Uh, th- there are and have been a series of advents inside of not just law enforcement, but the military ex- in extreme circumstances. Right. 
uh, where mm-hmm. robots have become very much the norm. But what I wanted to ask both of you in both of your law enforcement lives, has the mechanized, quote, perfect cop arrived yet? No, and I, I my opinion, no, and I don't think it ever will. And I, I'm glad you, you asked that question. Go back to that movie with Will Smith called I, Robot. You recall that movie? Mm-hmm. Sure. And if you recall, the, the center the the centerpiece in the plot was that futuristically they had robots everywhere, mm-hmm. and he was a cop. Mm-hmm. And his angst against all the robots was he was in this situation you find out later where car goes into the water, he goes, you know, he's in one of the cars, little kid's in the other car, robot comes down and saves him, kid dies. It's not the call that he would have made as a human being. Once you take emotion out of policing, you know, and, and there and there will be people that will argue, well, if you do that, then there's no bias. Yeah, but there's no compassion, there's no empathy, and things are going to go bad. I, I think it plays to two things, and, and one is that discretion is very important in law enforcement, and that's why I don't think you're ever going to see mechanization of what police work is, because one of the most powerful tools that a cop has is their discretion. Right and decision-making on the street that can't be broken down into a flowchart that you would need to program it into a computer. That's right. And also, legally speaking, you can share the responsibility to do a particular job with a machine, but you're ultimately accountable for what that machine does. Correct. And in this movie, it kind of shows Chuck Norris's character telling this robot to go out and do while he's going and doing something else, and that's something that you couldn't have in law enforcement. Even in the robots that we use, the right. bomb disposal robots. There was a famous case where they used a bomb, a bomb squad used a bomb disposal robot to take out a threat. And right. even though there was a robot that was physically placing the charge, there had to be a human on the other side Making of that machine right. to make that decision. The robot is just the tool like any other law enforcement tool that we right. use. You can't let the robot be the brain behind what we're doing. I don't think that would ever work Right. Just because there isn't a method by which to give the robot the feelings, the empathy, and the good decision-making and the discretion that a police officer would have. Right, absolutely. I, I'm really glad that you, you chose the word discretion to be on the topping of the list that you made there with that cake of information. Mm-hmm. And it's because the, the, the word discretion is something that's almost completely forgotten inside of all of the hatred that's poured towards the law enforcement community currently. Mm-hmm. The, there are a series of evaluation marks that happen inside of every single law enforcement decision, whether it's as something as simple as when you push the button on the steering wheel up, the siren goes off. Right. Okay. That That's one of the decisions that you can potentially make while you're a law enforcement officer. Right. Especially in something as thick as somebody's life being in danger or needing to kill people. Right. The, the discretion that a police officer takes on every time that that does happen right. is something that we just can't pour into what happens inside of a ro- robot processing. Right. And it's, again, it was used because it was technology that was being used at the time, that whole, we're going to make this thing work with a joystick. Right. That what, That is exactly what was going on here. In fact, that joystick, make, I made it as another bullet point, but there's no reason to take the time. Look at that remote control, man. Yeah. Look at that remote control. It's huge. Right. It's probably as big as Chris's current cruiser, I think. I mean, it's a giant remote it's, control. Getting there, yeah. It's a container for a cruiser. It's right. huge. It, it, it's, a, it's, a giant, it's a giant piece of technology. What Tommy had brought up before, the uh, incident, I recall the incident in Dallas where they had to take out the sniper that basically killed five yeah. plus 
you know, other mm-hmm. one, five, five police officers mm-hmm. wounded others. They did. They they rigged up one of the robots, and they went in and they they took him out with mm-hmm. that that particular device. Mm-hmm. But there was somebody on the other end, and I recall the chief on the press conferences afterwards. And I recall them criticizing him, uh-huh. unjustly in my opinion, but criticizing him as he explained, you know, no, this was a decision. This saved lives. This mm-hmm. saved officers' lives. Mm-hmm. Because if I didn't send this machine in, that person would have killed more of my police officers trying mm-hmm. to take him out. Right. So, but, but ultimately, he was held responsible. Right. And at the same time, protecting the Commonwealth. Because, again, gunman dies, can't accidentally miss the robot or shoot it at officers again, thereby bullets go free. Right. Uh, that, that, again, we get back to that discretion and the determination of what needs to be done when it can be done. And that can only be done by human brain currently. Right. Two protectors don't realize two guys are actively watching somebody holding coffee cups. So two protectors are protecting the girl, who, by the way, we haven't even really talked about inside of this. She's she's kind of freeform, floaty, plot point lady inside of this movie. I, right. I don't find her very compelling at all. Uh, but, but the gist is that the protectors don't realize that there are two cops that are essentially standing, I don't know what, 50 yards from her? Having right. having a stakeout with even coffee cups. Right. And they don't get it? Those aren't the two people that I want protecting me. Right. They're not very observant. But in the <laughs> but you know, in the end we see that they're they're true to that form because the one guy gets stabbed in the back. Right. Which is a perfect segue to <laughs> Guy gets stabbed in the back while three feet away the girl runs free. Right. If the goal was to kill the girl because she's the remaining piece of the family that must die because of insert reason she must die. Well, if you have the opportunity to stab her there, why would you stab the guy in the back that is not even in the way? Right. Why not just stab her, or slit her throat, whatever? Right. Pick pick your manner of dispatch. Doesn't make any difference. Right. But why not do it there? Obviously, because it's a movie, and I get it. And but we've got to. I, I hate right. it when I can look at movies and go, "Well, that's why they didn't do it." Right. Th- that that is maddening to Mike Wilkerson brain. And let's face it, down here in Missouri, Mike Wilkerson, if that would have happened, there would have been <laughs> fifty people that would have whipped out their constitutional carry <laughs> pistol and lit that guy up right in the middle of the street. Hey, Tommy, does that concern you? Is that swath of concealed carry? rages across chicagoland no in fact uh quite the opposite i haven't had any negative interactions really in the last probably year there was there was a growing period when we first passed concealed carry in illinois and people started carrying firearms who weren't police officers because for a long time it was illegal for anyone who wasn't a police officer or a security guard on their way to and from the work and a couple of other little segments professional licensees who could carry firearms. And when we first started off, we were getting calls of people who were carrying guns. We get the man with a gun call. And now it really hasn't become an issue. And the only time in the last year that I've had interaction with someone who was a carry permit holder where I actually saw a gun was when they had used it to defend themselves. And normally it's business right. owners. Right. We hmm. found that people are figuring out here in Illinois, like they figure out all across the country when that it has, has had concealed carry for many years and in places where it's new. Right. In Illinois, there was a big rush for a lot of people to get their carry licenses, and a lot of people got their carry licenses, and then they find out that it's not so convenient carrying a right. gun around every day. Exactly. And so the people that are actually carrying them are people who have a legitimate risk right. in their profession. And so we get business owners who are carrying firearms, taxi drivers, truck drivers, legitimately people who were probably carrying firearms before but weren't doing it lawfully or now allowed to do it lawfully. 
and I've never had a problem with that. that I have yet to have a business owner get involved in a shooting yet where it ended right. up being a bad shoot. Right. And that's that's how we progressed here in Missouri. We had it. We've had it for years. You know, years ago we started concealed carry, and I can tell you the there was a hesitancy among law enforcement because that's what we had. We had we had it set up prior to that to where it was just the police that could carry concealed weapons. There was concerns. Everybody thought, oh my gosh, how everybody's going to be toting a gun around. It really didn't happen. Yeah. I mean, and if it did, yeah. you just didn't know about it. We didn't have problems on traffic stops like we thought. We didn't have uh, issues. The biggest issues we had was were, were people who were intoxicated, you know, carrying a firearm. It was still illegal. And to complement what Tommy was saying, too, I, re- I recall a case, one of the cases where a concealed carry permit holder utilized his weapon to defend himself, and it was uh, it was a, a valid uh, valid shooting and came out of it okay and actually the other subject that he shot survived also but mm-hmm. and it it did it did deter the crime so now people who are not convicted felons and have never been convicted of a domestic battery mm-hmm. they have a little card to prove it mm. so when i pull up on a traffic stop and i run someone's license plate their driver's license comes back and in my state if they have a concealed carry permit that comes back right on their license plate readout either mm-hmm. through dispatch or on my screen and then when I walk up to that car, I already know that the person I'm dealing with is more than likely not a felon. Right. Mm. Right. There's, I, there's something to be said for that. Right. Uh, th- th- those th- those little... A little card that you can tote around that you can hand it to the officer as your ID that shows, hey, I'm not, you know, a 12-time convicted felon or anything. You know, right. I'm just a normal, everyday guy. Right. Yeah, th- those little glints of what people need to see when it comes to any kind of carry, whether it's constitutional carry, concealed carry, all of those little tiny bits are also something we love to showcase here inside the cone of perspective reviews inside of whatcopswatch.com. The death of traditional yellow cabs. I know that there are still some. I see them in car shows a lot still, and mm-hmm. they are very prolific. Tell me, is there still a giant region set of either yellow cabs or green checkers that are available inside of Chicagoland? We, we still have cabs downtown. There's a lot of cabs downtown. It's becoming less of a thing with Uber. I'm talking about the traditional 1950s yellow cab, though. Well, those can't be. Oh, the 50s body-style car? They yeah. Can't be, they can't be running. No. You can't. It, <laughs> Chicago has to issue a medallion to every cab, uh-huh. and they won't even issue a medallion if the car is over a certain number of years old. <laughs> Yeah, there you go. I didn't know that, man. That's interesting. I I want to say it's 10 years. It may be less than 10 years, maybe seven years. But Chicago won't issue you a medallion. And in fact, when the second to last generation of Crown Vic became too old, the one with the chrome grill on the front, Uh people were getting caught trying to convert the front bumpers and grills on their cabs (laughs) in order to get a medallion and still use their older car as a cab in Chicago and get in trouble for it. Because those medallions are extremely expensive. Hmm. Yeah, I can imagine, and I'll bet that there's no pathway out of you don't get to take part of the money that you had for your previous medallion over to your new medallion. Yeah. Man, that's crazy. That's amazing. I make Eddie as a cop, but not one that's been watching me drinking coffee all day long. So I realize that, again, it's back in the 80s, but if someone that looks like Chuck Norris... Mm -hmm who's been drinking coffee from you 50 yards away mm-hmm. all day long. You've made him as a cop, I guess, because of how he's talking. I mean, he's talking just like Christy Giuseppe. 
minus the hair and the hairy chest and the karate chopping and the body and all that. But well, wait a minute, come on. Oh, now. Sorry. Hold anyway, on. anyway, the, 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 the gist is that the amazing awareness skill sets of this woman, mm-hmm. I instantly identify Eddie as a cop, but she didn't realize that the cop that she instantly identifies has been watching her all day. Right. I call major major league BS on that. Right. Uh, again, it's where the story actually writes against itself for no particular reason because it's dramatic. And daddy, no like. I don't care for that at all. Right. And maybe it was expediency, pacing. I don't know that it started to I don't trip them up. But, I mean, it, it, anytime uh, we it's insert drug. The, anytime we insert the realm of expediency and then we have what is yeah. at least nine minutes dedicated to petition signing. Sorry. Yeah, right. <laughs> Blowing by a guy that's doing blow. All right. So I just wanted to check with both of our officers on staff here. Uh, how many times have you walked by a guy that's doing, I don't know, three, four lines of cocaine on a mirror and just kind of walked around by and didn't bother to do anything except well, have maybe a loud phone call in proximity? Yeah, well, never. But, I mean, <laughs> the uh, you know, I guess if you put it in the context of the movie, if I'm trying to save somebody's life, I'll get him later. And that's kind of where they went with it. But, uh, yeah, like, like St. Louis, you a cop walks by you, you know, and... Uh, you know we're we're not a we're not a larger agency, Tommy. You know we're a 31 sworn officer, so we're a smaller agency. We're within a, a county that borders St. Louis County, so we're about a half a million people or so in our county. Yeah, we walk by uh, somebody who's uh, doing some lines of coke. Yeah, they're going to jail out here. <laughs> Tommy, how about in Chicago? Do they just kind of you know? Oh, blow. Yeah. Okay. Great. I I'm not gonna lie. We actually don't get a lot of cocaine, a lot of powder cocaine users yeah, where even. I'm at. Maybe that's just. We the neighborhood either. that I'm in, we do yeah. get a lot of heroin so and I. a lot of crack. Yep. Mm-hmm. And there there have been occasions where we've caught people with a single crack rock, a, a user-level person with a single crack rock, and not arrested them. Sure. Because it wasn't pertinent to the investigation that we had at the time. And right. in fact, in Illinois, a lot of the circumstances in which you're going to run into something like that is when someone overdoses. Right. And if someone overdoses in Illinois, we are not allowed by statute to prosecute people for any drugs that are found if they call for help for a person that overdoses. Right. Hmm. There's such an overdose problem here with people overdosing on heroin that's laced with fentanyl, and now there's a new one that's even more powerful than fentanyl that they're lacing uh, heroin with. It's coming up to the point where they're not even putting heroin in heroin anymore. It's just fentanyl. Right. And people, it's so easy to overdose on it, and it becomes such a critical issue here that we don't prosecute people for... Even the the hardest of hard drugs, if someone calls for help for an overdose. Yeah, and we, and it's same same way, same way with us too. We we uh, believe it or not, even even based on our size and and the uh, the and we have we have very uh, very good neighborhoods. We're in a very good area. We still have a heroin problem that's just plagued, uh, you know, our communities all over the place and. When we get heroin overdoses, it's like it's like getting a victim of a crime, and then you go over and you start investigating, and you find out that they did something wrong, and you know they're the victim of this this greater crime. You know, it's a tough situation. But like Tommy's saying, you know, is somebody calling out for help? We go over and help them. We're not going to charge them. One of the things though that we have been getting into, and I'd be interested to see how you guys do it in Illinois. We have been making some cases where we get these overdoses. And if we can track it back to the person who supplied the drugs, 
we will attempt to go and make some type of homicide case, some type of you know involuntary manslaughter case on them. And I have seen some successful cases that have gone to that route. You guys get into any of that, Tommy? We, we don't get into charging the dealer with homicide. At least it's not something I've ever seen. Okay. But they will try to track it back because obviously when someone dies or almost dies as a result of a heroin overdose, it, right. it leaves a bunch of not very reluctant witnesses. Sure. Painting a scenario. Officer DiGiuseppe and Officer Model are walking down the street, minding their own business. Just walking down the street, minding their own business. And then they see four guys chasing after a woman after some dude's been stabbed in the street, right? Right. All right, so you start chasing after the guys Mm -hmm. that are chasing the woman, right? Right. Which of you is the one that stops to help the stabbed guy and not help the woman that's being chased by four guys? And begin. So which of us stops to help the guy with the knife in his back? Yeah. Well, that is a it is a, an interesting and difficult decision to make, but you know, we we do have to render aid to the person who is dying, um, but we also have to try to preserve life on the other end. So it, I mean, it's possible that somebody takes off. It's it's a hard decision because I don't want to leave Tommy without backup. He's just he's chasing this well, guy that just stabbed somebody, and the but, and the seventeen year old that's running from four guys, right? So right, we got to save her. I, now, uh, uh, Tommy, give me your perspective on it. Call for lots of backup. I think which route, as an individual, which route you would go with that is going to depend on that individual. I know there are police officers who would stop to help the guy that was stabbed, and they'd get on their radio and give a good description of the four guys running away. And there's a good argument right. to be made for that. Right. The four guys running away could easily outnumber a normal person, maybe not Chuck Norris, but a, right. a normal person, especially if those <laughs> guys are armed. And the opposite is also true. There are a lot of guys that would take off after the four dudes chasing the girl because they're looking to preserve that life right. at the other end and would be using their radio to call help. Hey, there's a we've got a stabbing victim at the corner of such and such and such and such. Right. Well, and neither look, you're, you're, pursuits all the time. Yeah, neither, but, and neither is wrong. We get a semi that's that's running from us, right. and they crash into a car, right. and we're chasing that semi alone, or there's two units chasing the semi. We might call in, there's a motor vehicle collision at X intersection, send right. another officer over here and, and continue chasing that truck right. instead of stopping for the, the victim of that accident. But it's not necessarily wrong either way, which, right. whichever no, way you're I, I would say not. Right, but see, both of your answers are entirely too commonsensical and reasonable. Mm-hmm. Neither of them are entertaining, damn it. Well, that's true. So, look. That's an ongoing problem that I have, yeah. <laughs> no, it, 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 but it's one I wanted to make sure we talked about, because this, again, comes down to discretion. Something that Tommy brought up wonderfully that I hadn't even thought of when I started writing down points, because really... As I accidentally put this in the bads because I thought it was kind of BS. I mean, mm-hmm. yes, I agree that you obviously you need to check this guy's pulse. It looks like he got a knife in the ass. I don't think he's dead. Well, right. you got to check, right? <laughs> so do you leave a guy yeah. or you not leave a guy? Well, if and, and this is kind of where I put I mean, it's my perspective, and I'm not a cop, mm-hmm. but if I see four guys chasing this young girl, right, I'm going that way, right? And, it, and, it, and I don't disagree with you. I I. I would probably go that way also, Aha. but I'm not saying that it's wrong okay. for the other officers or somebody else making a, a different decision. I'm not saying it's wrong if you know Tommy's my backup and 
he stays there with the guy with the knife. And maybe I don't like that because, hey, now I'm alone. He's that's gonna, That thought's going to go through his mind, too. Yeah. Hey, I don't want to leave my fellow officer alone. Yeah. You know, and a lot of cops won't. Right. You know, but then again, I'm not. He's trying to help this guy who's dying. The other thing you got to figure, too, is you got to think of it like this. How much can I do for a guy with a knife in his back? I can call for an ambulance, but as far as me rendering medical aid, I'm probably not, not going to be able to save his life. Right. If he's going to die from that knife wound before the ambulance gets there, there's probably not much that I'm going to be able to do. Right. So I might as well try to chase the fleeing suspects to prevent them from hurting the girl. So. And I think it depends on the skill sets of the individual officer that's involved. I like to say that right. this is a job that takes all kinds. I, I work with a guy who, before he was a police officer, was a paramedic for five years. Right. And the, the decision of the guy who was a paramedic for five years and just became a police officer a year ago in that circumstance yeah, would he, be substantially different than absolutely. someone who's been a police officer for 10 years. Absolutely. That his only formal first aid training was, you know, the boo-boo class or learning right. how to put a tourniquet on That's for six exactly hours right. once a year. Right. Yeah. A good. Right. Excellent. Excellent answers. And the other thing that you've got to gauge, too, is, you know, me running... I don't know. You know, I don't know how far I'm going to make yeah. it. So, you know. You know, the, Tommy is actually six foot seven. Did I tell you that? Is that right? Yeah. Well, uh, I would. W- w- is that right, Tommy? I would definitely send him first then because. I, I think mean, you're he, about a foot and a half off. Oh, sorry about that. I forgot. No. Uh, it's also one of the reasons I in- knew I would instantly love Tommy's YouTube channel because he is. Uh, well, he's incredibly informative and incredibly good instructor. He is. And incredibly su- short. <laughs> he is superbly self-deprecating, mm-hmm. and I mean that in the best way, Tommy. You, 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 you strike me not only as a great guy that I know I love having conversations with. Which, by the way, our marathon discussion of a movie that is actually less than half as long as this podcast is a perfect sample of that. I, I love that. I love everybody's got their shortcomings, right? And that you obviously are happy to share that with people is awesome. But you two, you two would not be the running pair. I get it. How apprehension protocols don't go. (laughs) So we get to this scene where Chucky chases down the four guys that are still not yet killing the woman that's supposed to be dead. Let's just sum it up like this. This is a Chuck Norris movie. I mean, (laughs) we have to have this scene. I'm not saying I don't enjoy it. He gets, you know, he gets the four four guys in the in the alley. He has one gun. They have automatic weapons. He disarms them all. <laughs> they drop it. He's going to beat them up. I mean, you know, he's going to beat them up, and that's the way it's going to go. But I'm it's, not saying that's not entertaining. I, I get that. What I was more referring to, obviously, we can have the kick-assing, chop-socky, Chuck Norris-y sure. awesome. Awesome. I, I'm, I'm, I'm in. What I'm not in on is... The the kid then coming up and absolutely destroying everything in regard to the process of apprehension. And I haven't even seen a, a video on Tommy's YouTube channel that would detail it all that is as bad as this could ever be. <laughs> right. I mean, I mean, it's heinous. Right. The the guy picks up a gun like he's like he's touching a lady's bra or something. I don't under and and that it's dirty and alien or something. I don't understand that. Uh, the the. The the making sure that the people that are there on the ground are actually incapacitated, right? What, isn't that something that happens inside of apprehension? Sure. Okay. What I we mean, don't have any it, of that. I mean, yeah. I mean, you have to you have to make sure everybody's secured. I mean, if that's what you're talking about. <laughs> but I mean, it, it's a Hollywood movie. It's pacing. We got to you know, we got to get to the 
scene where Chuck Norris beats everybody up. After another four and a half minutes of petition signing, please. Wow. Yeah. We yeah. could have shortened that. In real life, anytime someone is knocked unconscious, that's a medical emergency. Right. Right. And if we then have that person in custody, that it's, it's the whole disarming the four guys in the alley by kicking them and punching them and knocking them all unconscious is... It's beyond the pale of ridiculous, right. but then when you look at right. the actual apprehension of what he's doing with them, just standing over and pointing the gun, right. not calling for any type of assistance, not getting these people that were just knocked unconscious medical attention is just yeah. not the way it would work in real life. And you, right, even when we... we not handcuffing any of them. Right. We utilize, I mean, we, we deploy a taser on people. We have to take them for a, a fit for uh, to a medical facility to make sure they're fit to... Put in jail. Yeah. To be put but in jail medically. You, you saw what, what size the remote control was. Can you imagine the size of a taser back then? Oh, It would no. have been like a cruiser. No, absolutely. You could hit uh, them with the remote exist. control. <laughs> but that's an interesting point with, with tasers. We often see in movies somebody tasing somebody and then falling and mm-hmm. being knocked unconscious. And it's led to this popular perception that tasers cause people to be knocked unconscious like a phaser right. in Star Trek. And that's not really the way it works. Right. You tase someone, the injury that knocks them unconscious is the, the fall to the ground and right. hitting their head. Right. And that's, that's a big emergency that has to be taken care of immediately if that happens. Right. And I think Tommy's hit it once again like gold is that it's something people just don't tether no. with the taser experience. It, it's, oh my God, you're electrocuting people? What? And that's, that is what's happening. That is what is physically happening, yes. Right. But it's for the form of incapacitation and... Tommy, there's a word here I'm, I'm trying to find that I don't know the word for, and it, you've used it. You, you are rendering something so that somebody stops doing something. What, what is that called? I don't know what word you're trying to come up with. But... I, I'll, I'll find it inside your videos. Uh, and again, it's over at Free Field Training on YouTube. I, if you guys find it before I do, then let me know. But it, again, it, it's wonderfully explained in a variety of videos where you're focusing on whatever the person is doing needs to stop, period, paragraph. And that's why the law enforcement officer is there. You're talking about the escalation of the use of force as far as the force continuum no I'm, I'm i'm talking about like you need to stop doing what you're doing and you don't want to and so i'm going to affect the force that i have right so it, it's not that it's not the whole um tommy's got a wonderful one about that as well where it's oh okay so you're gonna punch at me fine i'm going to escalate and go to blah right uh, th- that's not what we're talking about here again it's the cessation i'll, I'll find out what it is and okay. I'll, I'll, I'll let you know <laughs> The L trains and how they've morphed over the years. Boy, it's great to see the super old 80s L train inside of this. Mm-hmm. We've seen so many movies over the years where they've now morphed into something different. Tell me, what do they still run classic L trains like what you see here? Or uh, are they all now just morphed into the super high-tech awesome? To be honest with you, I haven't rode on the L in at least 10 years. Wow. I mean, it's not... I have a car. I don't work in the loop, and that's really what they're meant for. We have Metro rail that heads downtown now that is, it's a high speed rail that, that moves mm-hmm. a lot faster and is a lot more comfortable than the old L's. But hmm. the L cars still look fairly similar to what you're seeing in the movie. Interesting. Hmm. Does, um, in fact, either the L trains or the Metro, what is yours called? Ours is called Metrolink. What is yours called? It's just called Metro. Metro. Does uh, Metro have their own police force? Because there's now discussion to actually uh, create a police force because of some of the, I think there's been four or five acts of violence over the last just couple of months. Well, they, my understanding is they have a division. They have a division that's oh. assigned or they have, you know, they have officers that's, 
that are assigned, I thought, to mm. Metrolink. I thought St. Louis County okay. had do, that. Does, does Chicagoland have something like that? Do they have a, a band of officers that focus on that? Do you know? I think every rail agency here in Illinois that I'm aware of has a police agency. Mm. Okay. I know CSX and yeah. the Canadian Harbor Belt have them. And I'm pretty sure there's, yeah, in fact, I know there's Metro police officers because one was shot and killed a few years ago. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Then when we have, you know, we have railroad police that take care of the railroads too, and uh, they have their own investigators and their sworn officers. So we have, uh, it's similar here. The concept of payphones. I would like both you and Tommy to tell me right now where is the nearest payphone? Tommy, you're up first. Uh, probably wherever the closest snack place or gas station is. And even then, it wouldn't be every gas station. I saw one. I know I saw one at work last week, but I okay. couldn't tell you where it was at. Okay. So definitely not the directions to the next payphone officer, Abel. Got it. Chris, how yeah. about you? I'm going with the Smithsonian Institute in D.C. <laughs> Stop it. Um, I don't know. <laughs> That's awesome. That is exactly what I was looking for from both of you, though Tommy's was amazingly, awesomely descriptive and and it led to a perfect joke. The concept of payphones is gone. I, I, I'm not kidding. Sure. Uh, the other thing that is gone, uh, other than maybe your wife or maybe children's phone numbers, I dare you to tell me another phone number that isn't just somehow programmed into your phone or available via Google. Well, I can tell you, too, the, the thing that's disappearing are landlines. And I, and I can tell you from, from the 911 systems that we have, when we take a look at statistics of how many calls come in from a landline as opposed to how many calls come in from a cell phone these days. It's it's staggering. I mean, there's just uh, people are getting rid of landlines, mm-hmm. and uh, it, it's uh, it's just becoming a thing of the past. Yeah. So, it, you know, you, you, you look and say, wow, there's no pay phones. Hey, pretty soon there's probably not going to be any landlines mm-hmm. in homes. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't doubt that at all. In fact, if there's anybody still listening that still has a landline, it's probably dedicated like the one that I have to mm-hmm. my alarm system at home. Right. And that's quickly going away, too, because now those are all either going cellular right. or they're going to where they utilize the Internet inside of a location to transmit the signals. Right. Uh, anyway, the, the concept of a, of, of a payphone and where they actually are is actually our first call to the audience inside of this marathon perspective review of Code of Silence. Mm-hmm. I want to know right now how many payphones you have seen recently and i'm gonna guess we're gonna get no feedback at all mostly because i don't see them dude i I, right i I drive a lot and i can't tell you where there is one right what is the processing piece of the kid being able to come clean so we have the kid inside of this and the kid i'm referring to is the police officer that is Unfortunately, in proximity, when Craigie decides to besmirch everything that is a police officer, mm-hmm. what what is the processing part of what would happen with him to then originally say, well, the kid shot him, but the, now he's going to say, well, the kid didn't shoot him. The processing part, in my opinion, is exactly how they depicted it in the movie. Mm-hmm. If he doesn't have any reinforcement that there is somebody that has the guts to stand up and say this is wrong. I, I'm not going to take this. If they, he, he doesn't have somebody that's that's setting those values and those those priorities and that integrity, mm-hmm. like we do with Chuck Norris. Yeah, and that's exactly what they depicted in the movie. That prompted him 
to come clean. And, uh, you know, it the environment that he was surrounded in, the corrupt environment that he was surrounded in, fostered and, and elevated fear in him to come forward. Now, in reality, what I would like to think is, and from my experiences in law enforcement, most police officers that I know, not Hollywood, but reality, most police officers that I know are good people that have good, solid values, that have integrity, and no matter what, would be unwavering with uh, with their surroundings or you know whoever was whoever was around them, telling them, encouraging them not to take action, not to do the right thing, they would still do it. Mm-hmm. But because we're in a Hollywood movie, that's the way that they have to paint it. I think that's the reason why they have to kind of go overboard with all the things that we talked about, the petition and so on and so forth, mm-hmm. to show, you know, flush that out that, hey, this is a really corrupt environment, but Chuck Norris, the hero, is righteous. That's exactly right. They have to take it over the top for the sake of the movie. What would this movie be if it wasn't for the backstory of the corruption of the police department? How is being allowed? I mean, the, the movie would be like every other Chuck Norris movie or any other cop movie. Well, and it also would have a different name. Duh. Right. (laughs) That's the big get there. 18th and Halstead, a pool hall. Does that sound familiar, Tommy? Depending on if you're on the north or south side, yeah. Okay, fill us in. Well, uh, the south side of Chicago is uh, pretty notorious for violence, as Mm. I'm sure most people know. And so if you were at a pool hall at 18th and Halstead, you would definitely be on the south side of Chicago in the area that people hear about on the news on the south side of Chicago. Oh, wow. Okay. If you were on the north side, then it would be uh, a pretty nice upscale neighborhood. Okay. Hmm. Interesting. I I love dichotomy like that, and it makes me totally insanely interested about city, the way cities are laid out, put together. Mm -hmm. Uh, Again, I, I lived in a suburb of Chicago for nine of my formative years when I grew up Mm -hmm. inside of Schaumburg. Tommy, I think I told you that I don't remember or not. We, we lived in Schaumburg and I know that that's Westerly. Mm -hmm. I don't know how Westerly or how many miles or blah, whatever, but we would always, you know, go down to a cub game or we'd go down to the Lincoln park zoo or whatever Mm -hmm. else. And I don't remember anything of the geography-ness of where I was, what I was doing. Not nearly as much as I understand what is inside of St. Louis or even Milwaukee, where I finally finished my growing upness. Mm-hmm. What would happen if nobody responded to a request for backup? This is probably the biggest giant red flag that I have inside the movie, yeah. which... Not only, and the reason I made this such a high point to put it on the big giant end of my negative list is because this is what can never be taken as gospel of, remember those cops in that movie? Remember what they did? Yeah. This can never be anything that anybody knows about seeing inside of a movie where it could then be grafted onto you guys because this, I just cannot see this happening. It's just not going to happen. And, you know, it... And especially in the setting that you're you're displaying here in an agency as large as Chicago, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, if it, if it were to happen, and like I said, the the possibility, the practicality, and the the probability is is just not there. It's uh, cops are going to back cops up, whether they like them or not. They're going to back another cop up. 
that's just not going to happen. But, you know, you go to a large agency, and maybe you do have a couple bad apples that say, you know what, I don't like them. I'm not going to go back them up. I'm not going to do that. That might happen. It's not probable, but there's going to be backup coming from everywhere mm -hmm. on a scene like this. I mean, you got a shootout with a cop, what, in a warehouse? And there's multiple people, multiple guns, you know, explosions, everything else. There's going to be all kinds of backup. There's going to be a, a huge response. Mm -hmm. And, yeah, mm -hmm. the practicality of this going down like it did in the movie, just there's no way. I, and then the dispatcher's laughing about it and stuff like that. That's just not, all right. that's just not practical. And even if it was to happen, even if a, a, a large group of officers were decided to not go to back someone up, where is the supervision? Right, absolutely. That's all I could think while listening to them talk about, oh, we've got a... I think one of them said, I've got a dog, and we're waiting for animal control. I mean, there should be right. a supervisor at some level of that chain of command saying, no, you're clearing that unit, right. and he's going to go back this officer. Or a, another TAC unit or another investigations unit would go back them. Right. Right. And yeah, it's just not practical. Again, I love the perspective of perspective reviews that shines on an audience because of the dark days that a movie like this conveys right. to the people that are going to watch it. I realize it's entertainment. I realize that sometimes we have to shut our brains off and not process. Right. I realize that not everything can be super duper real life, but you have to understand that when you're conveying something like this that did and does reach so many millions of people, you cannot paint a picture like that. Right. You just can't. Well, it's been a marathon perspective review to be sure, but it's time for the rating for 1985's Code of Silence, starring Chuck Norris and my mom. <laughs> there you go. Awesome. The scale works thusly. A 10 is on top of the heap. A super hairy-chested man pushing down the world. The ones. Craigie with a flask. Everything starts at a 7 as an average. The numbers go up with positives. The numbers go down with negatives. And Chris and Tommy, there are no halvesies. Chris, what have you got? Well, my uh, first intuition was this movie should be rated a 7, but I've got to push it up to an 8. It's Chuck Norris. <laughs> I mean, Chuck Norris doesn't take 7s, so i got to move it up to an 8. And the reason being, 7 is there's a lot of bads in this movie. There was a lot of things that I just that they just didn't depict law enforcement correctly, and there's a lot of hokey things. There was some cheesy dialogue that I found, but... Uh, but Chuck Norris just has a flavor in every movie that he's in. And one of the things that I did like, aside from all the bads, was I did like how he depicted the righteous police officer. Even, you know, and the message. Even if I stand alone, I'm still going to be righteous. I didn't like how it ended. I didn't like how it didn't tell you how Craigie went to jail and everybody else went to jail. Because there's all kinds of charges for all of these guys oh, yeah. all over the place. They're all going to jail. I was washing my but, mustache. I couldn't respond. Yeah, Sorry. It's, it, uh, I mean, every one of them <laughs> were, we're going to be up on charges for covering this up and, you know, and on and on and on. But, but I like in the end, I liked how, I think the thing that rings true with me is how they depicted his doing what's right in the face of adversity. Yeah. Tommy, what have you got for this, uh, this movie, 1985's code of silence? For realism, I'd give it a three, especially with the Prowler robot. Right. With the rocket launchers. Right. But for entertainment value, I'd give it an eight. 
I'm I really am a lover of eighties action movies and growing up on movies like Under Siege right. and The Fugitive. Yep. This is a movie that I hadn't really thought much about in a long time when you started talking about doing the perspective review. And when I watched it for the first time a couple of months ago getting ready for this, I instantly fell in love with it because I just love the <laughs> the eighties guns and the hairstyle and the the grittiness that used to be in movies. And I like I actually like when I watch movies being able to see how they made it when they do a, a chase and they speed the video up to make it look like the car is going faster than it really is. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Maybe I'm geeky like that. I just I really get into the way 80s movies were made where everything wasn't CGI. Sometimes you just had to do it the old-fashioned way. Sure. I, I think all, all of your comments are very well said. I think, uh, again, what this movie instantly filled me with when I considered the perspective review after talking to Tommy on the phone was nostalgia. And I think both of you have referred to that inside of both of your ratings. Uh, obviously, mine's a little bit different, not only because I live there, but also because my mom was in the movie, but also because there is a tiny little bit of special that is cooked up inside of this movie that I can't quite yet put my finger on, even though we've been talking about it for almost three hours. Mm-hmm. And so with that, I have to give this movie an eight. So that's three eights across inside for this perspective review. Code of Silence, 1985, starring Chuck Norris. And now we're wondering what you thought of this movie. Let us know what you would rate this movie, 1985's Code of Silence, by going over to our website, that's whatcopswatch.com. Click anywhere on the right-hand side of the page, fill out the quick web form, and tell us what you think. Well, guys, what a great marathon perspective review of 1985's Code of Silence. Thanks so much for appearing. Tommy! Thank you so much for jumping in on the first perspective review. You mentioned a couple of other movies. Under Siege is cooking right now. We're going to have a guy that I graduated high school with who is a retired Navy SEAL that still teaches snipers and people how to be effective with their firearms. His name is Chris Sinog. Mm -hmm. I'll be sure to connect you with him on. He's got a ton of YouTube stuff as well. And then you also mentioned, that's the Under Siege perspective review. Then you also mentioned The Fugitive. Mm -hmm. And I'm assuming that that's probably three or four blocks down from where you are at every day policing the Chicagoland area, correct? Yeah, that's in my area. (laughs) Well, awesome. I think that that's something we're going to have to definitely plan, except that I'll leave about, I don't know, eight hours for an awesome movie (laughs) that must be talked about forever. Fugitive is a fantastic film that we haven't gotten to. But there's all kinds of law enforcement perspective and detail inside that film, just like there was inside of this one, 1985's Code of Silence. Tommy, thanks for jumping in with us inside this episode. Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. You betcha. So until next time, I'm Mike Wilkerson, one of your hosts. And I'm Chris Giuseppe, your other host. And I'm Tommy from Freefield Training. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. We're at 3 o'clock, too. I'm going to try and step on the gas here. Yeah, do it. You'll only have, like, six hours of cutting if it goes through. It's all good, though. That's what I love about it. It's good content, yeah. Except for your part. Well, yeah. I just edit just, me I would just edit I, me out. Your microphone's not even on, so. I would edit me out. Worry about it. Be me and Tommy having a great conversation for three and a half hours. Yeah. Just make sure you put that break dancing <laughs> comment in there.
Maybe. <laughs> oh, I definitely. Nick, keep the uh, break dancing <laughs> comment in there, please. Oh. In fact, at the end, what we're going to do is we're going <clears> to <throat> we're going to actually. Um, Take bets on what uh, Mike Wilkerson's breakdancing club was called. 